Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, how are you? Oh, I'm excited. All right. I'm always excited about something. I know. It's um, kind of off-putting after a while. I, well, my life is awesome. I have a great life. It's working out pretty well. Yeah, thing, things are going well. You just got back in town. Yeah. Everybody, uh, uh, you know, say congratulations to my sister, whom you don't know. You don't know. She's not on Twitter, so I don't know how you would get a hold of her. Uh, that's the only social networking thing that's left, right? Just Twitter? Uh, I, they don't I, do any more? I think she's on Facebook, but I'm not going to say her name. Cause that's oh, Facebook? People are still doing that? Yeah. Like, even after the movie? <laughs> exactly. um. Yeah. I don't want to give that guy any money. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, my sister got married. It was great. I was in home in St. Louis and uh, was pleasantly surprised to find that even though I'm, you know, late in my 20s, Mm-hmm. Very much an adult. I can, I can still drink pretty well. <laughs> I I drank a lot for like four days straight, and I felt good. And I I found out the secret. Like most people have these different hangover cures. For me, as long as I get eight hours of sleep, I might have a little bit of headache, but I'm fine. If I if I understand because that's that's the problem with getting drunk on a night when I have to go to work the next day is that if I only get like five hours of sleep, I'm gonna I'm gonna be miserable all day. But here, I, I I learned that you drink a little water, and you pace yourself a little bit. You could do, uh, you know, great things. You could do four shots with your brothers on St. Patrick's Day. I got, we got in. Man, St. Louis is a drink is a good drinking city. I've heard and that. Yeah. People like my family, including my mom, just good Catholics, are good drinking people. My mom picked me and my girlfriend up from the airport. We went. We didn't. Pasco, we didn't collect $200, we didn't go drop off our luggage, we went straight to Dogtown, which is the neighborhood where they have the outdoor uh, St. Patrick's Day festivities, it was on St. Patrick's Day we got in, I don't know oh, if I mentioned that. Um, my mom already had the cooler packed, because here's the cool thing about St. Louis on St. Patrick's Day, in this area, the uh, open container carry on the street laws are blatantly ignored as long as you don't have glass. If you have aluminum, you bring a... You you, literally, you bring your cooler, you set it down in the middle of the intersection because they've blocked off the streets. Pop it open and just sit there and start uh, start drinking. And my mom, mom showed up at the airport with the cooler packed, took us straight there, and then it was four days of drinking and revelry. And congratulations to my sister, Erin Roth. That's her new name. Although it sounds as though your excitement over her getting married is incidental to your excitement over how much you can put away. I I I, I was very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Because <laughs> I don't, I you know, I don't, I don't do uh, drinking for four days straight things anymore. I mean, uh, I do Comic Con every year, and I, I get pretty drunk then. You but sure do. Anyway, that's only part of the reason I'm excited. <laughs> it's also that time of year. I'm, yeah, I'm not talking about St. Patrick's Day. St. Right. Patrick's Day is great. That's done. I'm not talking about s- spring springing, even though it has. It has, oh, it right. has sprung. Oh, indeed, yes. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Thai New Year, which is right on the corner. I'm talking about our yearly donation drive. Oh, indeed, yes. It's going very well. All right. You know what? I was totally phased out. And uh, <laughs> when you finally said something that required a response, it's like, oh, right. There's a mic in front of my mouth. Uh, yeah. yeah the, the, the donation drive, it's going well. You've got two more weeks. Mm-hmm. And you're going to want to get those donations in. Um, a one-time donation or what we would love is a subscription donation. Absolutely. They come, what, what sort of installments? It, 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 it's once a month for a year. It, you, it comes right out of your PayPal account. Right. You don't even feel it. You don't even feel what it. Are the, what are the amounts they can go for? Well, David, I will be honest. Some of these they might feel. 
But it, you know what? It'll feel good. It depends on how well they're doing, how Indeed. comfortable they yeah. are. Um, okay, so there's a lot of options as far as subscription goes. You got your $2 a month. That's uh-huh. what we had last time. People were very generous. That's great. You got your $4 a month, which is what I would suggest, because uh, that comes out to a, a dollar, dollar a week. Episode. Yeah. You and know? then some months... You get a free episode that way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, kind of like February, those, uh, you're out of one, luck. one or two uh, months a year, I get three paychecks. Nice. Uh, those are uh, those are always great. Uh, and then there's $6 a month. There's 10 12 and 16 Now, of course, nobody's probably going to go with the 16 Or are they? Surprise me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> prove me there. wrong, listeners. So, what gets them entered into the into the donation drive into well, the raffle the, for the one do, uh, for the one time uh, subscription? Yeah, uh, five dollars or more. Right. All right. Uh, and then, I'm sorry, the one time donation, five dollars or more. Right. One time donation. Yeah, yeah. Five dollars. I, I, I misspoke. More. I think. Um, but for a subscription, any of those subscriptions will do. Yeah. It. So if you, yeah, if anything, anything helps. Obviously. The, this is a completely listener supported show. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do, uh, we don't have any advertising, and uh, we don't get paid. We actually obviously have to pay for the, uh, you know, storage space and right. and uh, I don't know bandwidth. I don't know. And we just computer changed the terms. website that cost money. You know, it all happens. It did, yeah. And uh, we, you know, we put up for the, those who live in Los Angeles. We put on the live show four times a year. So if you live in Los Angeles, you kind of. Uh, it, the the burns on you a little more like it would kind of be uncool for you not to donate it would be very uncool um but okay yeah five dollars or more or a subscription which we would love if you did that you don't even feel it four bucks four bucks a month don't you, don't even, f- you don't even feel it don't even feel it yeah here's what they can win okay I'm, I'm gonna start running down some stuff okay you jump in whenever you want okay DVDs they can win DVDs yeah you've got um Paul F Tompkins his uh stand up comedy uh DVD called You Should Have Told Me. Mm-hmm. You have Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Yeah. This is a signed copy. Signed by, signed by Stephen, Stephen Tobolowsky. Yeah. You know how much those go for at Comic-Con? Lots. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I, I happily bought one, by the way, at Absolutely. Comic-Con. Uh, that's a signed copy. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what else do we have here? We've okay. got uh, Kavi, signed by... This is, this is the Oscar-nominated short film, Kavi, Kavi right. signed by the director, uh, Greg Helvey. Um You've got uh, a short movie called Reservations, directed by a friend of the show, Jason Eakin. And starring me. It's signed by signed by Jason Eakin, but you have, you have on the list here that is not signed by you. I'm not signing that thing. Okay. That also comes, obviously, stars Tyler and has a commentary track of the two of us and Jason. Right. Uh, and then, uh, also in the DVDs, The Tick Season 1, signed by Townsend Coleman, the voice of The Tick. Very exciting. What else could they win here? Okay. Throwing it to me. Very exciting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we also got some CDs. Uh, some stand-up comedy CDs. Uh, we've got The Comedian's Got a Boo-Boo, which is Graham uh, Elwood's CD, mm-hmm. which is signed. We have It Is Never Going to Be Bread, which is Jackie Cation's CD. That is also signed. And then we have the AST uh, EP three-pack. Yeah, this is three EPs. Um, that's extended extended play, right. which means it's uh, longer than a single, shorter than an album. Although, really, the Greg Proops one is pretty much album length. So that's a good okay. deal right there. Uh, you got Paul of Tompkins... Um, Greg Proops and Dan Telfer, and that Dan Telfer, solid. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. And uh, he, yeah, he he's, he he might not be as known as the other names we've mentioned as far as stand-up comedy goes. Yeah, but I'm sure if you live in Chicago and you have taste in comedy, you know who he is. Absolutely, and and you should know anyway. 
Um, what else? Well, we got some books as uh-huh. well. We've got The Coffee Break Screenwriter by Pilar Alessandra. Yeah. And uh, that's very helpful if you want to, for example, write a screenplay on your coffee break. Right. Not a whole one. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be in increments. Uh, and then uh, for you new fathers out there, or if uh, you, know, you know someone who's a new father, you can, uh, you can give them or read for yourself Pacify Me, written by Chris Mancini, also signed. Yeah. Very um, exciting. Very funny. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's Chris Mancini. It's a touching book as uh, well. Chris Mancini, the comedy film nerds. Um, um, our friends at Geek Tyrant have don- uh, are going to donate a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't asked them what sizes they have. I imagine I'll ask whoever wins it what size they want. And, That's a good uh, call. And Venkman over at Geek Tyrant will be compliant. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, we'll pick uh, some Battleship Pretension stuff to send to you as well. Right. The big one at the end that I want to talk about that I really like. This is very exciting. Uh, Never Not Funny, the great podcast, the greatest comedy podcast that there is and pretty much the reason that uh tyler and i decided to go into podcasting right the inspiration uh have donated two it's they've gone they've gone subscription right a few years ago it's it's well worth paid subscription yeah paid subscription for the show you can get a free subscription to all of season eight that's Mm -hmm. 26 episodes for free or you can win these are these are two separate things okay you can win all of seasons one through five. Now seasons, they're twenty six episode seasons, but seasons one and two are season, a bit bigger. That, yeah, that's that's one the first hundred episodes. Season one is sixty episodes. Season two is forty. So that's and then after that is twenty six. Yeah. So that sounds like it's about one hundred and seventy eight episodes. I'm bad at math. Is that, that what it sounds like? One hundred and seventy eight episodes. They're all. I mean, by, by the in the later episodes, they were going up to ninety minutes. They're all like yeah. 45 to 90 minutes. Yeah. That's a lot of comedy for and if, free. And if you're a fan of, of like various comics that have been on our show, then this is for you. Because you got yeah. Jimmy Pardo, you got Matt Belknap, Mike Schmidt, Paul F. Tompkins, Bill Dwyer, Sklar Brothers, Paul Russ, Pat Francis, like all uh, number of people. Jimmy Dore, Mike Siegel. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure who else. Paul Gilmartin. Paul Gilmartin has Jen been Kirkman. on there. Jen Kirkman, the great Jen Kirkman. She was I on our show first. Out. There's probably more. She was on our show first. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you say Paul Rust? I did say Paul Rust, yeah. All the um, Pauls. Jesse Thorne, Jesse who's Thorne. been on our show, has been right. on that show. Uh, so that's these are the things you can win. It's uh, well worth, um, you know, four bucks a month. Yeah, uh, for and a chance to win some of this awesome stuff. We'll break we'll, we'll break it up into into five different well five different winners. Right. We had, so we've we've done three in the past. We have so much. Our our guests have been so kind, giving us so much great stuff. We're doing five different packages. Right. So that's you know two more chances to win something. Yeah, which is very exciting. So, and uh, and uh, some people have been very very generous so far, and we do uh, appreciate everybody that has donated so far. Uh, it really uh, means a lot to us because, you know, I, I understand like not everybody has uh, a lot of money, and so we appreciate all the support. But some people have gone like above and beyond and been, you know, very very generous, and it's crazy. So, so. if you haven't donated yet, you should feel pretty guilty about it. Yeah, you know absolutely. Okay. Sorry for taking up your time. We're just really excited about the uh, yeah. donation. We have a here. guest. We have a guest. Yeah, here. I'm, I'm telling you the third reason that I'm excited today. Okay. First, my trip. Yeah. Second, the donation drive. Third, we have a guest. We do. Yes, absolutely. Now you 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 know him certainly if you listen to our good friends over at the Criterion Cast. He's been on there a number of times. Mm-hmm. He has his own podcast, uh, which is great and brief. Yes, and I don't. I, I don't. I like I don't to call mean, it grief. I don't mean that it's good because it's brief. Like I don't mean to imply that I couldn't stand more of him. Right. But I'm saying 
I and this is hypocritical of me, but things in general, podcasts, movies, TV shows, uh, songs, could stand to be shorter. There's just so many of them now. Yeah. It's a good idea to keep them shorter. I, so I I have heard that regarding our uh, favorites of 2010 episode, the which three hour episode, two hours and fifty minutes, please. <laughs> All right, he's got his own podcast. It's called the Radio Conrad. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, West Anthony is here. Wait, what are we doing? I've been drinking and I've had no sleep. <laughs> Son of a. <laughs> West, how you doing there, buddy? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yeah, well, um, well, let's talk. Uh, well, let's talk a second about Radio Radio Conrad and how you uh, just what your thing is. What do you have out there for people? What the thing is is basically I just try to be funny and and entertaining and really brief. Keeping it short was kind of a key to the, oh. when I was thinking about how I was going to get into podcasting, and I thought about it a long time. And it's weird because you know they always say, "Oh, you know, don't think about something you want to do too long; you'll never do it." Well, screw you! I thought about it a long time. <laughs> And I, I really, I came to it with a very specific set of precepts and, and notions about what I wanted it to be and what I didn't want it to be. And having listened to a lot of, uh, you know, different podcasts, including yours, and uh, just, I know what my strengths are, I know what my limitations are, and so the format that I arrived at is the one that I think suits me the best. And what's the average... Uh Basically, it's between five and ten minutes. Perfect. Your longest episode is, I believe, fifteen minutes. Yeah, I hit fifteen minutes one time. I'm not even sure what it was about. It's a little self-indulgent. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get carried away. It's, I apologize. What are you, Michael Chimino? <laughs> um, <laughs> well done. Uh, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, uh, and 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 basically, I mean, I I first uh, I I knew of you as a guy who would tweet at me. Oh yeah, that, that happened. Um. And then I became friends with people like uh, Ryan Gallagher and, and Rudy Obias um, of the Criterion cast. <laughs> At least one of them is. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's recent news at the time that we're recording that uh, there, there's been a rift in the Criterion cast family, and our thoughts are with them. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, through knowing those guys, they they knew you also as someone who would tweet at them, and also because they, they're all technologically advanced and they like live. <laughs> stream their stuff and 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 you're in the chat room usually yeah. how do um, they do that <laughs> um and, and and so that's how i knew who you are and then you um introduced yourself to me at comic-con this past year right before it was right before the stan freeberg yeah it was panel. between danny elfman and stan freeberg right <laughs> and it was only because because i you know was checking twitter and i noticed that you had tweeted that you were in the room you were right. in the same room that i was in and i thought oh wow so then and then I had I recall seeing a picture of you guys, so I had a vague idea of what you looked like, and then I knew that you were you were kind of dressing up, whereas everybody else there was pretty much dressing down. Yeah, so, people so dress I, like uh, I, I, at Comic Con and, and airports and casinos. People dress for comfort, and I I think comfort's overrated. I like to I like to look nice. Yeah. So and yeah, so I went up and introduced myself. But you didn't. You, you introduced yourself as West, and yeah. you didn't say that you were Radio Conrad at Radio Conrad. Oh, and so like five minutes later, I'm checking Twitter, and it says like I'm like, it's at Radio Conrad says just met David from at the pretension, and uh, yeah, well I don't know, I just don't feel like I should be going around. Oh hi, I'm West. Uh, you may know me as Radio <laughs> right. Conrad on Twitter, but oh, people... no, oh I'm an idiot. Sorry. But <laughs> then you came to the to the meetup. Um, which I don't know if we're doing again this year because uh, I won't be there. Tyler won't be at Comic Con this year, but I'll, I'll I'll see about doing something. 
Um, anyway, you came to the meetup, and, uh, and now you've got the podcast, and, 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 and people know you. You're out there. You've been on uh, Criterion Cast because they're, uh, you know, ahead of the game. Has had you on. How many times you've been on? Like five times on that show. No, 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 not that many. It was just twice. Just twice. Yeah, and it's been like special kind of sub episodes, sort of thing. Oh, like like point yeah. seven. Yeah, yeah. Right. They haven't had me on to uh, to actually discuss a specific film, but okay. I, mean, I was there to. Uh, let's see, we were talking about you know Blu-rays, uh, you know certain Criterion titles we would like to see upgraded to Blu-rays. Yeah, and, that one. And then we got in depth. Uh, it was me and Ryan and uh, Moises. Hmm. Uh, it, it, well, as we learned last week, it's pronounced Moises. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> but yeah, the three of us were talking about the the ginormous uh, BBS the box BBS set that they set, yeah. Criterion came out with uh, late last year, which is just you know, yeah, one of the one of the highlights of 2010 as far as I was concerned. And I believe there is a blog series being written about that. Box yeah, what's set. happened with that? Uh, He's done Easy Rider and Head. Yeah, yeah, and uh, more to come. You who, know. Uh, that's Scott. Scott? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot which one of our writers was writing the BBS series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I was going to say get on it, but actually Scott's, uh, Scott writes plenty. Yeah, he's <laughs> fine. That's how one of the other writers to get on it. <laughs> how about me? I don't write yeah. anything. Yeah. I wrote that thing about Take Me Home Tonight, which nobody, uh, knew about. Neither my, my article nor the movie. Uh, yeah, people check out the website. It's going really well. Lots of fun. Um, Anyway, so that's who Radio Conrad is. But I mentioned the Twitter because I follow, of course, follow you on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you were talking with uh, Justin Vactor. Right. Um, another internet movie guy. <laughs> um, I, I, presence? How about presence? Yeah, he's, got a, he's an internet per, internet personality. Okay. Um, Gadfly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Gadfly's great. <laughs> and you were talking about um, composers... Right. Um, and you said that you would love to someday do one of Battleship Pretension's profile episodes on Bernard Herman. Yeah. So here it is, episode 210. Long-time listeners know that anytime we do an episode, that ends in the number ends in zero. And it's not a 50 or a 100. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's not a special zero. Right. I just bit my... <laughs> <laughs> I bit the inside of my cheek while I said that, which is why it came out as zero. <laughs> I went, I went kind of like Catherine Hepburn there. Yeah, I, I thought you uh, might have suddenly gotten the vapors yeah. or something like that. Um, everyone knows every 10 episodes we do a profile. West had mentioned this on Twitter. I thought this is the perfect opportunity. Let's have West on and let's him carry, let's let him carry the load Absolutely. and this talk about Bernard Herrmann. Mm-hmm. So, famous composer. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. Let's. West, how you doing there, buddy? Not you ready? Yeah, well, as ready as I'll ever be, I guess. <laughs> All right. I'll take it. So so what what do we have on the sort of uh background? Well, of I mean, you know, he was born around 1911 uh in New York, I think the Bronx specifically, and uh he was kind of a prodigy. You know, I mean like at the age of 13, he won a contest for something that he had written and his first uh, big thing was in radio. I mean, he was actually the uh, the conductor for the CBS Studio Orchestra. And at that time, through the 30s and the 40s, I mean, he was, you know, he worked with CBS uh, in radio for the better part of those three decades, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and he was their conductor. And he was responsible for introducing a lot of... Uh, orchestral and classical music to a wide radio audience. Uh, 
and uh, and then of course eventually he fell in with you know some nobody named Orson Welles, mm-hmm. and then uh, he began working with Welles in the Mercury Theater on the air. So and he was responsible for you know the the music the, the musical cues in the uh, the legendary War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. And Orson Welles had really come to rely on him. So when Welles got the deal to go over to Hollywood and put together a movie for RKO, he wanted, in addition to all the, the Mercury Theater on the air uh, players that he had with him, you know, Agnes Moorhead and Joseph Cotton and so forth, he also wanted Herman with him. So, you know, that's that's how Herman ended up in Hollywood working on films. Is that, that was his, his big break in the movies, so to speak. All right. That's, so that was very efficient. Well yeah. done. Uh, this, this is why the Radio Conrad <laughs> podcast is so short. I know. That's great. Um, yeah. so, Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, with Orson Welles, his first movie, his first movie as a composer is Orson Welles' first movie as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, the AFI greatest movie of all time, and and uh, voted t- by you, the listener. T- uh, voted, yeah, the Battleship Pretension greatest movie of all time. Uh, My favorite I think movie. The, the Sight and Sound, favorite, best movie of all time. Yeah. Tyler's favorite movie of all time, K- Citizen Kane. Absolutely. Which Thanks for is, ending uh, with me. I appreciate that. What's that? <laughs> Thanks for ending with me. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> it's the cherry on top. You, you and I are the important ones in every conversation. <laughs> Damn right. Um, it's amazing. I mean, obviously, Orson Welles gets the credit, and he should, because he's mm-hmm. the director of the film, but uh, it was an amazing confluence of talent, that movie, because, you know, obviously... You've got Joseph Cotton, Ag- Agnes Moorhead, um, and other actors. Um, Orson Welles. You've got um, uh, Greg Toland. Greg Toland. Oh no. man, you know, uh, never mind. <laughs> I, kept, I kept thinking Drake, Greg Turkington, which is the real name of stand-up comic Neil Hamburger. Yeah, that's. <laughs> oh, I don't think he was. I don't think he did the no. But I, I, I knew it was Greg, no, and I could not come up with Toland. Yeah, you got Greg Toland, and of course Bernard Herman, like all coming together, and that's. That's a dream team, and it's uh, for 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 not only Orson Welles and Bernard Herrmann, but I think for some of the cast, it's their first movie. Right. Yeah, because those other like people like Joseph Cotton and Moorhead also came from the Mercury uh, Theater radio thing. Yeah, <laughs> and in addition to being such a stellar confluence of talent, also there's the fact that they were basically pretty much given the run of the place. I mm-hmm. mean, Orson Welles had just like you know a dream deal that even today, you know, filmmakers would you know kill people to to get a deal like that to have the absolute freedom that he had have Mm -hmm. final cut and be able to just you know hire who he wanted and do what he wanted and so everyone working on the film was you know basically given just an an unprecedented level of freedom to do their thing Mm -hmm. and 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 herman is actually you know a really good example of that and you know one of the principal beneficiaries because you know the amount of time that composers got even back then in the hollywood factory days you know, the amount of time that composers got to work on a film was pretty short. Mm-hmm. He had maybe like a couple, three weeks. Herman was given 12 weeks. Hmm. He was wow. actually, you know, putting stuff together while the film was being shot. I mean, they were one of the things that, uh, that has been said is that the, uh, the final shot where the camera is moving all over all the stuff towards, you know, the thing that we all wonder what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no spoilers. Well done. Uh, no, there's going to be spoilers at some point. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. but it's unavoidable. But it's been. It's oh, been wait sp- till we get to the part in Psycho where yeah. Janet Lee dies. But it was. Oh. <laughs> it She's was killed said, by a sled. <laughs> it was said that Herman had already written the music for that scene, and Greg Toland actually timed the camera movements to the music. Wow. They had that kind of time, and they had that kind of creative freedom. 
So I mean, it's really it's really unprecedented. And again, it's something that you know pretty much none of them ever really got to enjoy again. As you know, it's something that will will get to presently. Wells really respected uh, Bernard Herrmann quite a bit, partially because in that film, everybody has to do a lot of things like. Because it takes place over time, of course, the actors have to give several different performances, granted only of one character, but we see, okay, this is them young, this is them old, right. uh, this is them idealistic, this is them cynical, and uh, and Bernard Herrmann was no exception because that is a film that ha- not merely has a lot of music, it has a lot of kinds of music, because not only does he write you know, what I think is just this very melancholy and beautiful and sad yet kind of bombastic i don't say that in a negative way but like not only does he write this amazing theme for citizen kane but he also writes the opera in the film right and what's especially fascinating and what must have been i don't know gut-wrenching for him it's like hey i need you to write an opera solely so that the main character uh, so that the person singing it will sing it poorly Yep. Is that all right with you? Like that's got it. It just has to fly in the face of everything that he's been trained to do. But he did it. And what I like about the the music of that opera is, yes, Susan Alexander does not sing it well, but the the beauty of the music is still there. And you think, and it makes you think, oh, I really wish. I could see this performed well. Yeah, the the quality of the music actually makes her performance that much more, you know, <laughs> pathetic. Yeah, pathetic's so. <laughs> a good word for it. Um, but yeah, now, it's uh, oh, go ahead. Now, wait, you brought some uh, some clips of songs, so I'm, and you know what's on that thumb drive that you brought. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna let you uh, you know let us know. Cue us to pause for dropping those in. This is going to be very exciting. We've never done this before, partially because I'm I'm always worried about copyright things, but whatever. <laughs> No one cares. We are not on anybody's radar. Certainly not uh, Warner Brothers. But uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> hold for edit. There we go. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was mean. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, uh, we do want to play a clip from Citizen from the Citizen Kane score. Uh, what are we going to be uh, possibly hearing? Well, actually, um, probably the best thing to do would be to play the uh, the opening. Okay. Which is because. Uh, for starters, it contains both of the primary uh, musical motifs that uh, recur throughout the film because there's, you know, and they're only they're all just like, you know, just a few bars each. One of the hallmarks of uh, Herman's work as a composer is that, you know, he was never big on writing melodies, you know, mm-hmm. stuff that you know, you could come out. Sing. He yeah. would he did what is referred to as ostinatos, which is basically just a, a brief phrase that is repeated. And that's what happens in Citizen Kane. There's, you know, these motifs of destiny and Rosebud that are repeated and there are variations on them. And um, and that's that's really the kind of uh, composition that he did throughout his career, which is not to say that he, he couldn't come up with a really nice melody because there's like a there's an absolutely gorgeous one, you know, coming down the road uh, when he began working with Alfred Hitchcock. But, you know, there's guys like, for instance, um, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, guy who, you know, in the golden age of Hollywood, you know, is doing a lot of stuff. You look at. uh, (coughs) All right. You look at what he did with the Adventures of Robin Hood. 
I mean, you can actually go out, you know, humming the music from that film because it's just, it's a melody. You could put lyrics to it. It's just, you know. You, Were those the lyrics you wrote for it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> okay. It's, it's Tagalog. No, no it's, um, <laughs> no, but it really, it's, you know, I mean, you can, you walk out of the theater and you're humming that and you're ready to swatch some buckles. It's awesome. <laughs> But, you know, Bernard Herrmann didn't really do that kind of thing. I mean, he was really good at, you know, at setting a mood and, you know, but as far as generating melodies and stuff like that, which is, again, was something that sort of, you know, came back to to, to hurt him later on in his career. But it's not really the kind of thing that he did. But the opening music for Citizen Kane kind of you'll you'll hear those uh, two motifs and also you'll hear what he did in terms of instrumentation, because, you know, you have your standard orchestra and all the studios had their own orchestras fox and warner brothers and mgm everybody had one but one of the interesting things that herman liked to do was he liked to kind of change it up he wouldn't just take the orchestra that you gave him he always felt that each film is different and so the music should reflect that individual film and so you might not necessarily want to use all of the instruments in the orchestra. So, for instance, in Citizen Kane, the opening of Citizen Kane, there's 12 flutes. There's some clarinets, tubas, trombones, percussion, and a vibraphone. That's it. Hmm. And he would do stuff like that where, you know, just like doubling up on the brass and no strings or all strings and nothing else. And he would do that throughout his career. But uh, and you can you can really hear the him, you know, setting the mood and the atmosphere in that that opening music for Citizen Kane.
So uh, you mentioned the um, the repeated phrases. What is it? Ostinatos. Ostinatos. Yeah. And I feel like that's. Uh, I think a lot. A lot of people think of Bernard Herrmann. They think of Psycho, uh, and 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 his work with Hitchcock, and they think of him doing uh, suspense films. And I think that ostinato sort of format uh, definitely lends itself to the suspense genre. The way you can that repeated thing oh. is, is 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 likely to cause to oh, cause certainly. tension. But that's not the only thing he did. I, I, I when I we don't have a clip from this, but I wanted to mention uh, another movie the same year as Citizen Kane. Uh, the Devil and Daniel Webster, which is right. a movie that I adore, yeah. and it, it has suspenseful parts, but it also has a lot of very uh, almost playful, playful and idyllic yeah. t- type of mm-hmm. type of. Mel- uh, I don't know if you, uh, melodies is the word, but uh, this is this is why we had uh, West on for this because well, he's the a better. That, that's that shows that you know that yeah he did have that facility to do more sort of you know lyrical kinds of music. And then also you have the whole thing where, you know, he did, you know, when the devil is playing Pop Goes the Weasel, uh-huh. which was, and I think some people feel that, because, I mean, if you've ever heard it, uh, we don't have it here, but, uh, you know, he's sort of, basically, the old scratch is kind of, you know, fiddling out a tune on the violin, and it's Pop Goes mm-hmm. the Weasel, and then he basically sort of, you know, as he continues, it just turns into something that no single human being could conceivably play by themselves, uh-huh. and... So the, the, I think some people feel that uh, or believe that he just, you know, eventually just hired a string quartet, just you know, or got four violins and you know, violinists and got them in there just sawing away. He multi-tracked it yeah. for the film. He specifically felt that having the same person playing all the parts would make it feel like it was one guy playing everything. Hmm. So they multi-tracked that bit. And then there's a, a funny story that hey, um, I guess he knew uh, the the. Uh, great violinist uh, Joshua Heifetz at that time. And he, he played him the recording. He said, oh, yeah, yeah we, we found this, this really great young Hungarian and played it for him. And Heifetz was like, just went ape over it. Oh, I've I got to meet this guy. Said, nope, no, he was, he was punking you. <laughs> well, that's a gr- that's, I'm glad I brought up Devil and Daniel Webster because that's a great story and mm-hmm. sort of illustrates why, um, I mean, this is the first composer that we've done a profile on, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and... Um, it, it illustrates why uh, composers deserve profiles because they are sort of auteurs in their own right, and that's a very uh, sort and, of crazy artist and very thing few to do. more so than Bernard Herrmann. Right, I mean that guy. He was I mean, he was one of the things he was legendary for, apart from his music, was being just a really cranky iconoclast. <laughs> he just was not afraid to get into it and get in anybody's face under any imaginable circumstances. He burned a lot of bridges in this town. <laughs> it's. You know, it's interesting to to bring up like the devil and, and Daniel Webster, because as you and and it's and it's interesting what like what you've specified about him because we'll talk about this with with Psycho is that um, his his desire to well we'll talk about probably with all of them but Psycho is the one that I think of the most you know but uh, just his his ability to his ability and his willing willingness to adapt to whatever the film needed. Um, as opposed to bring the film to him and and do what say like well I'm going to put the Bernard Herman touch on this and I'll turn it into what I think it should be. There's a lot of there are a lot of composers that I enjoy that I like, but one score is kind of the same as the next and right. and and even when they're memorable and good, it's like okay well this 
you could have just plugged in the score from an earlier film into this and it would have been basically the same. And and what I do like about him is that he looks at at the the story being told, the mood being uh, evoked by the director and by the actors, and he lets that he lets that influence what he's going to do while also knowing that he's going to be influencing the way the audience reacts. And then in the case of like Citizen Kane, Orson Welles respected him so much that uh, he and Greg Toland built their stuff around his music. And it was just, I, I like how, I like how adaptable he was in spite of the fact that when you do hear his stuff, you hear, you hear him, but without him saying like, here I am, I've done the score. What do you think? Yeah, and regardless of what it is, and regardless of what the orchestration is or what type of film it is, you know it's him somehow. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've listened to enough film music, which, I mean, maybe I've listened to too much, but I can always spot a Bernard Herrmann score like a mile away. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few composers I can do that with, and he is, he is definitely one of them. Miklos Roja is another one. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, Bernard Herrmann, you, you always know his work. And, and the funny thing is, you know, you say that, you know, he didn't, you know, impose himself on it, but in a way he kind of did. It's just that the way he imposed himself on, on films was just incredibly versatile. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, again, you'll, you'll see down the road, there were instances where, you know, people didn't want him to do music, and he did it anyway, because he felt he knew better what, uh, what the film needed. And, you know, there were times when he was right, and there were times when he was uh, not so right. Or maybe, you know, times when he, you know, was right, but somebody who had more power over him uh, thought otherwise. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And it's, that's one of the things that makes him so beloved of, you know, people who know about film and film composers today. Danny Elfman always, you know, cites him as, as, a, as an acknowledged influence. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of hear that as well in, in Elfman's work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because, again, the whole thing of, you know, if you listen to the score for Batman, which is, you know, a great score. But again, do you do you ever do you hear a recognizable melody going on there? You hear this one mm-hmm. thing, da, 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 and you there are variations on that. But that's pretty much it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's you know lots of other great stuff in that score, but there's no, you know, there's no recognizable melody that goes on for, you know, eight to 12 bars or something that, you know, you might want to, you know, attach there's no, there's no to. Laura's theme. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you know, I guess, well, I mean, maybe they left that stuff to Prince, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no complaints there. People should, people should leave more stuff to Prince. Yeah. <laughs> um, like political decisions. And, yeah. 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 Just just let him run everything. Why not? Yeah. He's, a, he's a prince. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's next? Except for that short well, time um, when he abdicated and became <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what next is? I although let me let me point out real quick that uh, yeah, Citizen Kane and The Devil and Daniel Webster were the two films, first two films that he did in 1941, and he was nominated for the Oscar for both of them. Wow. One for The Devil and Daniel Webster. That was the only Oscar he ever won, wow. and uh, <laughs> it was one of the the few times that he was nominated throughout his entire career. Which hmm. is, you know, just one of those those, you know, criminal facts that uh, we all have to deal with sometimes. I mean, right. Cary Grant never won an Oscar. I mean, Hitchcock never won one. I mean, at least Herman got one, but you know, yeah. there was so many other opportunities for him to be, you know, at least nominated. But again, you know, he's just he really upset a lot of people. <laughs> so, as good as he was, you know, there was not a lot of recognition uh, in this town in his lifetime. Also, perhaps it was. Uh I don't know. Maybe I'm being uh, conspiratorial, but uh, 
maybe they wanted to give, maybe they wanted to give it to him for Citizen Kane. But speaking of pissing people off, Orson Welles had made so many people angry that nobody wanted to support any aspect of that film except screenplay. But that was more for Mankiewicz than uh, yeah, because than he he was he was their boy. Mankiewicz yeah. was was beloved in the uh, in the Hollywood community. That's and so true. maybe they thought like like oh. Uh, yeah, maybe. Well, he did uh, this. Yeah, this giving fun him the Oscar for here. the Devil and Daniel Webster was like, you know, yeah, slipping it in like through the back door, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we still like this guy, but not for your movie. Right. Punk. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. And then the next thing that he did was uh, another Wells collaboration. And this is where, you know, you see what happens when, I mean, first you have a just total creative freedom, and then the next minute something bad's happening, and that was The Magnificent Ambersons, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, legendary for just, you know, being taken away from Wells, and you had, it was a, a two-and-a-quarter-hour film, got cut down to a little below 90 minutes, yeah, which was just, you know, just a, a disaster. I mean, what there is is still a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't appreciate the, the, the tacked-on ending. Yeah. But, uh, but, and that was a film where, Herman wrote about an hour of music for the picture and half of it they removed. Mm-hmm. And then some music was re some of the scenes were rescored by uh, one of the staff composers at RKO a fellow by the name of Roy Webb. And Herman was predictably incensed. He raised a big stink about it. And that's why if you go back and you look at the magnificent Ambersons, look at the opening credits, there is no credit for music. He'd insisted mm. that his name be taken off. And so instead of, you know, even crediting Roy Webb, RKO just said, okay, nobody. Hmm. So that there's, there is no music credit on the Magnificent Ambersons, but some of it is Bernard Herman, some of it is Roy Webb. Hmm. So, and it's, it's a shame. There again, there's, there's no telling what we might have had, you know, if, if, with, with the Magnificent Ambersons. And, you know, all it is now is just, you know, the bottom half of uh, Mexican Spitfire sees a ghost. That's... <laughs> That's, and that's the only reason we know that movie at all today, is that, you know, RKO dumped the Magnificent Ambersons onto the bottom of a double feature uh, bill, with the, and then the top of that bill was the Lupe Velez vehicle, Mexican Spitfire Sees a Ghost. <laughs> and that was not uh, scored by Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> no, no, okay. I don't think so. <laughs> it was directed by Orson Welles, though. It was very... <laughs> he was, he he was, was in a whimsical <laughs> phase. He needed the money. What is the... Uh, what is the phrase I love from the Leonard Malton book about uh, when he's talking about Mr. Arcaden and he says uh, that he <laughs> Wells employs a lot of Wellsian tomfoolery? <laughs> Wellsian tomfoolery, that's right. <laughs> uh, anyway. Which I think point. he said uh, as a as a burn on Wells. I like Mr. Arcaden. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> I think he actually said that in reference to F for Fake, though. Oh, okay. Because he gave that one like two stars. I love that movie. Yeah. There's a lot of Wellesian tomfoolery in it. Sure. There is. Yeah. Oh, boy. More than most, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, all right, so let's uh, Moving along. keep on moving. Okay, uh, then after that, you have uh, Jane Eyre in uh, 1943. And that was where Herman began a, a very long, like over two decades, um, a relationship with 20th Century Fox. Not that he was ever under contract to them. He was never under contract to anybody, as far as I know. He just he wouldn't stand for it. But uh, the head of the music department there, uh, Alfred Newman, not to be confused with Alfred E. Newman. Right. Uh, you know, he. From what I understand, this guy didn't worry much. No, no, not a lot. <laughs> what him? <laughs> no, but uh, 
Alfred Newman was a was a champion of Herman and and brought him in to uh, to work on Jane Eyre and and also I, I imagine Orson Welles who starred in the film might have uh, exerted some influence there himself mm. because uh, the head of the studio Richard Zanuck he actually wanted Igor Stravinsky to do the music for Jane Eyre hmm. uh, he was unavailable <laughs> uh, but Bernard Herman was willing and and he did do. Uh, uh, a very you know evocative and and dramatic score, and also this was around the time that he began working on his opera, and there are a few bits here and there of the score for Jane Eyre that yeah, rhymed that uh, <laughs> that found their way into his opera, which was an adaptation of uh, another Bronte sisters novel, Wuthering Heights. Huh. So he began working on that in in 1943, and it took him several years to complete it. But uh, yeah. So he worked uh, on several films, uh, 20th Century Fox, over the next uh, couple of decades. But Jane Eyre was the first. And then uh, a couple of years after that, he did one called uh, Hangover Square, which I have not seen. But uh, it required a... Uh, That's going to be the next sequel to The Hangover, though, right? <laughs> hang, hang, hangover Square? Yeah. <laughs> well done. More hangovers than we You just pointed to yourself. Yeah, I was pretty happy with that one. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, that was that. In that film, it required him to write a a ten minute concerto for a piano and orchestra, hmm. and uh, apparently he he did such a good job with it that uh, he received a fan letter from a fifteen uh, year old nobody from New York by the name of Stephen Sondheim. Hmm. He huh. said, uh, "Oh, hey, I, I like this," and Herman uh, wrote back to him, which was which was kind of kind of nice. And then, what did he write back? Something like, "Don't bother me, kid. Yeah, mind your own business." <laughs> no, no, he's he he could be very gracious. I mean, I, I would certainly hope so with a fifteen-year-old kid, but right. you know, you never know. But uh, and then also around that time it was nineteen forty-five. He actually turned down his first opportunity to work with Alfred Hitchcock, and that was hmm. Spellbound. Hmm. And that uh, job went to Miklos Rocha, who uh, won an Oscar for that work, and also was one of the earliest uses of uh, an electronic uh, instrument that has gained a, a cult following over the decades known as the theremin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Roja used it in the scores for Spellbound and The Lost Weekend. They're both in, in, the, same, right. in the same year. But they, they, the theremin did not gain its, uh, its widespread notoriety and popularity as we know it today uh, under the baton of, uh, of Roja, uh, as we shall soon see. All right. All right. This is exciting stuff. <laughs> that sounded fake. <laughs> I, I am excited. I am as well. I'm always excited. We established at the outset of this episode that I am always excited about things at all times. I know, but that then everything drops to zero, and that's just uh, becomes a flat thing. You know, your excitement becomes the, the floor, not the ceiling. Okay, How do you right. sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. What's, what's wrong with that? Very excitedly. <laughs> With a big smile on the, my face. The blankets yeah. are everywhere by the time I wake up. I'm so excited. That's, uh, that is actually true of me. I, am, uh, I do not stay still. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> oh, but, uh, okay, so then uh, 1946 was uh, Anna and the King of Siam. Uh, and again, Jane Eyre, Hangover Square, Anna this and is, the King uh, of Siam. These are all 20th Foster, Fox pictures. Jody Fat. No, no, not, not that one. That's a good movie. It, it was it was okay, but I mean, you know, Chow Yun Fat is no Rex Harrison. <laughs> Sorry, he, he just isn't. And if you've seen uh, Chow Yun Fat starring in My Fair Lady on the stage at uh, you know Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, uh, 
Now, Anna and the King of Siam, it was he uh, had the opportunity to to try out sort of you know different flavors of music. He actually was running all uh, all over town uh, to music shops looking for Siamese and Balinese music and trying to adapt that kind of music with Western instrumentation. And uh, uh, somebody must have thought it was very successful because there was his uh, second Oscar nomination, which mm-hmm. he lost to Hugo Friedhofer for The Best Years of Our Lives, which, mm. you know, I'm not going to complain about that because I adore that movie to high heaven. Yeah. Mm. But that's that's one of the those. Uh, we should make a list someday. I know the, the film spotting guys have their pantheon mm. and those are movies they can't talk about, but I don't want to. But there, there, there's there's a list of movies that come up probably the most often on Battleship Pretension. Yeah. And I feel like Best Years of Our Lives has to be one of them. We, we've, it doesn't we come about up that often. It should come up more. It's That's so what I'll say. beautiful. I feel like we talk about that and we talk about The Thin Man. Thin Man comes up a, a lot. lot. Yeah. Yeah. Those Thin Man movies are insane. <laughs> I've only just... ever seen the first one. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all just, you know, they're they're drinking and solving crimes. Mostly drinking. It's insane. I mean, you know, and it's like me. I I love the 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 studio the the censorship hypocrisy that you have with the Hayes office and everything. It's like you know William Powell and Myrna Loy. They have to sleep in separate beds, but you know, meanwhile, it's like she's waking up in the morning and here comes William Powell. You know, bringing in a tray of booze. It's like, good morning, darling. Here with the dog. It's like, wait, what? You're gonna. The, that's okay. That this is acceptable. And then you know, like in, at the end of the the second movie. Uh, Myrna Loy announces that uh, they're going to have a baby. Like, wait, no, no, you're alcoholics. <laughs> Why are you? And then, and then, sure enough, then the third film, there's they're carrying a baby around and solving yeah, crimes yeah, and drinking. Yeah, a baby in one hand, a smart a martini in the other. In the other. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, I don't know. But and how did they make that baby? Obviously, they're not having sex. That's right. probably why they're drinking yeah, not so in much. Those separate beds. I mean, <laughs> Some kind of osmosis going on there or something. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, All right. Um, no, but, um, yeah, and that uh, that Oscar nomination that he got for Anna and the King of Siam would be the last one he got for 30 years. Wow. Really? Yep. 1946 to 76. That was it. Nothing else. Not one for uh, Vertigo. Not one for North by Northwest. Not one for Psycho. Not one, not one, not one. <laughs> and then... That's and, actually... Like, I didn't know that. I was expecting just, it was like, okay. Is he, yeah, I, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. That's what you were thinking? Yeah, not, uh, not even a bridesmaid. Nope. And then finally, 1976, scored two again, Taxi Driver and the Brian De Palma film Obsession. But by then he was dead. Uh, and uh. he didn't win them. <laughs> so there you go. It's jerks. <laughs> Hollywood jerks. You know, I got to say... Uh, I don't think the Academy uh, makes the right decision all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah they I'm going to put issues. that out there. The, I mean, the well-deserved best picture for the King speech notwithstanding. <laughs> I, I, I haven't even seen the film. It's a perfectly fine film. <laughs> Didn't deserve best picture, Not but perfect it's perfectly enough. fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's finally perfect. All right. Um, I'm sorry. Yes, I, we keep, keep interrupting. I apologize. No, yeah. no problem. This is fun. Oh, good. <laughs> this is very fun for me. Absolutely. <laughs> now, um, 19- I was just thinking to sit here and bring nothing to the table except my own just jackass sense of humor. <laughs> it is kind of we are the we are like color commentators on like the real guy saying real information. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, 1947 was uh, the Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Mm-hmm. Another picture with uh, Rex Harrison. And uh, Gene Tierney. And that was also one of the uh, it was a film that he did with uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. 
hmm. who uh, was a fan and wanted to use him later on in his career, but that didn't work out. But um, and there again, and Ghost and Mrs. Muir is another example of a very beautiful and and kind of you know lyrical score, very romantic. Uh, Herman considered that one to be his best work. He thought that was his favorite film score. And there is another instance of certain uh, phrases and bits from that score finding their way into Wuthering Heights. So, and, um, and then again, long around that time, 1947, uh, he had, a, another opportunity to work with Hitchcock on the Paradine case, turned that down. And he was also going to work with Orson Welles again on Macbeth. Hmm. But, uh, it just, you know, at that time, Welles was in his chaotic scrambled film production mode and it did not sit well with Herman. So he just said, no, hmm. thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, went, went his own way. So uh, it's a shame those two didn't get to work together again. But uh, and then 1948, he did a little bit of work on this film called Portrait of Jenny, which starred uh, Jennifer Jones. But all he did was the theme song, strangely enough. And uh, I've I've never seen that movie. And I've always wanted to hear is Jennifer Jones sings this song. Uh, I believe the title of the song is Where I Am Going. But I'm only sure of that because... Um, Pat Denizio, the lead singer of the Smithereens, who was himself a gigantic, uh, you know, cineast, he covered that song in the beginning oh, wow. of his uh, solo album in 1997. So that's how I know the song, but I haven't heard the original version of it. Uh, I would like to one of these days. I tried to Netflix Portrait of Jenny and they, they didn't have it. Hmm. So yeah, that's the way it goes. But and then there was a, f- a couple of years there where he was not involved uh, with Hollywood. There, there were periods like that where he would just, you know, since he had the radio career, he was all throughout all of this. He was still the conductor of the CBS orchestra. So, you know, he always had steady work in the radio because even after, you know, Orson Welles kind of abandoned the radio, he would still work not only as just, you know, the conductor of the orchestra, uh, you know, just playing music for people, but also he would work on other people's radio shows like the legendary broadcaster Norman Corwin. He did a bunch of shows uh, with that guy. So they were so he he was always working on the radio, even when there were a few years here and there where he wasn't working on films. I mean, it's it's worth pointing out at this point that he's taking a little bit of a break from films here. We've covered less than a decade. We've covered something like eight years, I think. Yep. Um, so you're saying we should pick it up? And yeah, yeah, we should just pick it. No, but I'm also saying like he, uh, this guy was obviously uh, prolific. Well, but it also points to what you were talking about before, just how quickly these scores were turned around and not only that but i mean the 50s is actually where he really gets going where Mm -hmm. i mean he he returns to hollywood to live and his output is i mean you think this is a lot of stuff in the 50s he really ramped it up well let's (laughs) let's do the same so so we're not here all night (laughs) yeah um uh, 1951 he did uh, on dangerous ground which is uh, a really wonderful film directed by steven seagal right yeah (laughs) yeah that one (laughs) it was directed by nicholas ray uh, with right. uh, with Robert Ryan and Ida Lupino, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure he got that gig out of his association with Wells because it was produced by John Hausman. Mm. Mm. So, and uh, there, and what's interesting there is that one of the things, one of his kind of pet peeves, I remember actually reading uh, the transcript of an interview that he did with somebody was that whenever somebody would say, like an interviewer asked him about 
bits of the ghost of Mrs. Muir finding their way into his opera of Wuthering Heights, and he, you know, denied it strenuously. And it's like, well, but, you know, they, they sound the same. And his argument was, well, that's because I wrote them. I sound <laughs> like myself. <laughs> and yet, in On Dangerous Ground, and I, I was just watching it last night in preparation for this here thing, what we is doing now. I mean, there is, there is a little phrase of music that you can hear very clearly eight years later in the score for North by Northwest. Hmm. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like it doesn't, it's not similar to it. It's not vaguely reminiscent of it. It's that, right. You know, and that happened a couple of times. Um, but it, uh, um, it's funny that anyone would complain about that. That doesn't, it doesn't bother me that, Sp- I that Spike Lee in all his movies does that thing where the actor's standing on the dolly with the camera so yeah. that they're still like that's just one of the sort of yeah. tricks that he has in his bag and it, it doesn't bother me that Bernard Herrmann would uh, reference himself yeah, he finds a few things to read because I mean it's not even like a huge amount of music that you know not like you know take a whole giant five minute piece and moved it over into this other film it's just a little phrase you know and that, and that happens a couple of times but yeah i don't have a problem with it but i think it's just his pride as a composer he doesn't you know maybe he didn't want to be perceived as somebody who would you know run out of ideas or something mm. you know because you know he like i said he's very temperamental very prickly so i mean there was let me just say there was I heard a I actually heard like about a five minute excerpt of an interview with him. And for most of that ex, that that bit, I'm just listening and he's just, you know, he's very calm and, you know, and he's, you know, speaking, you know, very sensibly and intelligently about music film. And I thought, well, wait, what? I, I thought this guy was cranky. And it's only until the end, not until the end. Finally, he just, you know, pulls it out of that nosedive of sensibility <laughs> and just just goes off for no reason. It's like, you know, yeah. People write letters and they say there's too much music. It's too loud. This is rubbish. All you would have to do is look at a film without music. It would be unbearable to look at it. <laughs> I was like, wow, you are him. <laughs> and it's, you know, and again, it's, it speaks to, to his temperament and how easily he could fly off the handle because he's kind of wrong. Because one of the, one of the hallmarks of, you know, his work is also that he knew when to shut up. Because there are yeah. plenty of instances where, you know, he could put music into a scene. One of the things that you, you see or you hear best in Citizen Kane is what he learned from radio. Is that in radio, the music that he would do was largely transitions from one scene to another. And that's a lot of what you hear in Citizen Kane. Is that there's, there's music that's transitioning you from one scene to another. But then within the scene itself, there are some exceptions, but then... Take, for example, the best example I can think of is that wonderful scene where, you know, Mr. Thompson is interviewing Bernstein mm-hmm. and Bernstein does that that beautiful monologue about the girl with the parasol on the ferry. Right. right? I mean, somebody like Max Steiner would have been all up in that shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would have just slathered music. I mean, and I love Max Steiner dearly, but just, you know, some of this, there's, you know, you look at like a, something like now Voyager, there was no scene in that movie. So melodramatic that he could not just swoop in and make it melodramatic year. <laughs> but Herman just left it alone. Mm-hmm. And the scene is exquisite the way it's played. So, you know, he, he knew when to step in and he knew when to step back. So the whole notion that, you know, you know, a film without music would be unbearable. I mean, you know, and then look at uh, 12 Angry Men. There's music at the beginning. There's music at the end. Right. In the middle is a long stretch of brilliant. Well, and also. Right. But as then a, Hitchcock made the birds, which. Yeah. Yeah. I, although his choice of not to ha- have any music in the birds is, I think, a good one because. But Herman was involved in that as well, though. Did huh. he? 
we'll get to. Did it. he record some oh. birds? <laughs> um, but the uh, but I it, it does speak to again. Clearly, he's somebody who really uh, thought highly, not necessarily of himself, although I'm sure there was that as well. But spot, uh, thought highly of music just saturating a film. But he made a lot of suspense movies. Yeah, and he understood that sometimes silence can be the most suspenseful thing ever. Right. Um, uh, well, I guess I guess we'll get to the example I was going to use when we talk about Psycho. But uh, but yeah, he's somebody who I guess that that is something that I often think about with an artist I like and respect is their willingness to sacrifice maybe even a, a deeply held artistic belief in favor of the project and the work of art that they're that they're a part of. Right. And it sounds like he was he was willing to do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, quite as often <laughs> as maybe some people. Mm-hmm. But uh no, but that's that so that's kind of, you know, again, another hallmark of him is in addition to just, you know, his music being generally brilliant is that, you know, he knew when to hang back and he knew when to step in. And again, that's something else that we'll see later in his career. But uh we're still in 1951, and that brings us to uh, one of the most legendary scores in the history of everything, which is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, mm-hmm. boy, which we'll play a clip of. Do you want to yeah. do that now? Let's play a, ki- a clip right now. Well, that was great, and we're back. <laughs> hey, everybody, you've been listening. Now, um, and of course, uh, this is really where most people were first exposed to the electronic instrument known as the theremin, mm-hmm. the instrument that you play by not touching it. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it it really is remarkable. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody, you know, play the thing yeah. or try to play it, mm-hmm. but I mean, basically, it's just you know, there's an antenna, you know, there's a vertical antenna. And there's a horizontal antenna, and you gotta, you know, keep your hands in proximity to those antenna. Uh, one, uh, c- 
controls the pitch, you know, higher and lower, and then one controls the volume, making it louder or softer. I mean, I I can barely play pole position. You know, I mean, I, it would be impossible for me to operate a theremin without, you know, piercing somebody's ears. So, but, uh, and there were two theremins in that, uh, in the score for that film, along with four grand pianos, four harps, an electric violin, and an electric bass. So, and it's, it's really amazing that, you know, when you hear that score now, and the theremin, of course, then was, you know, later picked up, uh, in in other films, it became sort of a hallmark of a lot of you know horror films, mm-hmm. and then in popular music, uh, Brian Wilson legendarily used mm-hmm. it for uh, "Good Vibrations," which is still the most insane hit single in <laughs> the history of popular music. <laughs> I mean, you really, if you think about it, you think of every song on the hit parade from the past even to the present. Does does anything sound like "Good Vibrations"? <laughs> Nothing does. And yet, that it was a number one hit record in 1966. It sold a million copies. Um, I I love that. I love that America was able to actually just you know embrace that kind of kind of avant garde weirdness just just once. Uh, another thing I want to interject here about about Bernard Herrmann and and the score and how sort of um, I guess the phrase avant garde maybe is the is the right word. Uh, it's sort of. It, I guess you talk about a guy who's such a crank. <laughs> yeah. You think of an old man who's set in his ways. I don't know how. Right. I mean, he. I don't know how old he's already. Pretty old at this point, right? Uh, yeah, he was about. He was forty by nineteen fifty-one. Okay. So he was a he was a grown man at this point, uh, and I think it it's it speaks to his for for however cranky he was. It speaks to his genius that he was willing to be out there in the forefront with these electronic instruments, like not only the theorem, but just using things like an electronic electric bass and electric violin. Oh yeah. Well, he was like one of the things that he was doing with the, the CBS orchestra when he was, you know, introducing America, a vast radio audience to, you know, different kinds of music. He was a champion of uh, composers who were sort of unorthodox. Like one of his uh, favorites was a composer by the name of Charles Ives, who was somebody that I was kind of exposed to, as a result of, uh, of, you know, Herman's, uh, you know, appreciation of him. And some of the stuff that Charles Ives did was just, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it's possible for musicians to play it mm-hmm. much less for, you know, your typical mainstream audience to listen to it. I mean, there was a thing that he did is uh, from a piece, three separate pieces, uh, under the umbrella title, three places in new England. And this one piece, it literally sounds like two marching bands meeting on the field of battle and then plummeting to their deaths. <laughs> if, if that's even understandable, but that's what it sounds like. But, and Herman thought nothing of, of playing those kinds of composers for, you know, his radio audience. So, yeah, he was, you know, he was able to think outside the box, as it were. So that's how you get something like the theremin. So and again, so and again, you know, Miklos Roja, he used it twice in 1945 and, you know, not a blip on the radar. But then, you know, Herman puts his mind to it and all of a sudden, you know, everybody sits up and takes notice. And I, I it, think also, I mean, putting it to a science fiction movie maybe got people's attention because it sounds so otherworldly. And yeah, the earth still was a film about someone coming from another world otherworldly is absolutely the, the word i was about to use because i i mean i i'm a big fan of the lost weekend um and i like the score from that and that i think used the theremin very well because it's just this guy who feels 
woozy. He's wigging and out. That, and that is kind of a woozy instrument, uh, especially if you see rats coming out of the wall and bats and all that sort of thing. And so, uh, but yeah, to associate it with something that is not of this earth, as right. uh, Day the Earth Stood Still is, uh, is a mark, like, you know, a mark of, of brilliance. And, of course, at that point, like you said, um, the Thurman was then the hallmark of sci-fi horror. Yeah, to a certain, a certain extent, we have Bernard Herman to thank for the Thurman being associated with science fiction and horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, I mean, Robert Klein... That was like one of his signature bits. And, you mm-hmm. know, when he was, you know, as far as his stand-up comedy goes, he was always, you know, talk, when he would talk about scary movies, he would always do, he would always do this, and yeah. it's like because you know, he was imitating the theremin. That was uh-huh. his thing. Is he, you know, it taps right into that that primal horror movie thing in your brain. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, and we yeah. at this, that's right. We already played the clip of it. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Let's leave this in though, with you forgetting. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> now, also in 1951, uh, he completed *Wuthering Heights*, the opera. Um, that doesn't mean that he got it produced, which he did mm. not in his lifetime. He tried repeatedly and ever unsuccessfully to get his opera produced on the stage, and it did not happen uh, in his lifetime. Wow. Uh, might. Again, might have to do with all the bridges that he burned. Another part of it, though, might be the fact that it was three and a half hours long. <laughs> so, how long is the, your average opera? I gotta say, I've never seen one. I, I gotta say, it couldn't be more than like a couple of hours, maybe. But then, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of operas myself. I mean, I'm familiar with a couple that I can't even pronounce. And then, mm-hmm. but then you have something like, like you know, Philip Glass doing Einstein on the Beach. That was three and a half hours. But then they said that you know the audience was free to walk in and out whenever they felt like it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how much of an opera that really is. Uh, Nixon in China was like two hours. But um, I'm trying to think know. what I know about opera. But and all I know is uh, uh, in Amadeus, Jeffrey Jones yawns during that. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's a big it's, thing like that it's too long yeah mm. um laborious is the only word i associate with opera and so i assume <laughs> long but i guess you know uh, yeah, I'm, a 90 I'm, minute thing can be laborious overall i'm not a big fan of opera myself but i mean i have heard uh wuthering heights just because i'm such a fan of bernard herman and i'm and i was curious to you know to find out about you know these bits of music from his films that i was familiar with put in the context of this opera which i was not familiar with so let me ask you was he was Bernard Herrmann, I mean, you mentioned he, you know, burned some bridges, so of course there it might have been that. But was he somebody who was widely respected in the musical community at the time? Whether oh, yeah. Not just radio and, and film, but just in general. Oh, yeah. They they loved his music. They just didn't love everything else that came with it. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that was, the, I mean, because then right around that time, uh, in the early 50s, around 52, he... Uh, Joseph Mankiewicz wanted to use him again. For that, but at this time, Mankiewicz was with MGM, and he was working on Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. He wanted Herman to come in and do that score, but they claimed that there was, uh, you know, they said there was no money. There was there was no money in the budget for Herman, and so they went with you know a staff guy on the MGM payroll. But the thing is, and I was reading about, uh, there is a biography of uh, Bernard Herrmann, the only one that I know of. It's written by a guy named Stephen C. Smith. If you want to find it, I think it's still available on Amazon.com. It's called The Heart at Fire's Center. It's 
written by Stephen C. Smith. And in that book, uh, he had interviewed the guy who was running the music department at NGM at that time, a fellow named John Green. And yeah, he said that, you know, that there was no money in it. But then also, he was also talking about how Herman had kind of yelled at him in a restaurant one time. And so you got to think, because look, again, if everybody respects him as much as they do, then really, you'd find the money, wouldn't you? So mm-hmm. I got to figure that, you know, yeah, maybe budgetary concerns had something to do with it. But I have to think that, you know, a little personal rancor had something to do with it as well. So he did not, you know, get to work at MGM. Not mm-hmm. then. I mean, eventually he would. But yeah, Mankiewicz wanted him for Julius Caesar. Didn't work out. And uh, and instead, at this time in the early 50s, he actually started working on a lot of kind of B movies for Fox. Um except for the snows of Kilimanjaro. That was kind of a, that was a big movie, mm-hmm. but, uh, and that was one of two scores that he did in 1952, the snows of Kilimanjaro and another film, which I have not seen called five fingers. But, um, and then at that time in 1952, you know, the score for the Oscar for the best original score went to Dimitri Tiomkin for high noon, mm-hmm. which, uh, actually is not one of my favorites of his scores. And I think it's because it centers on, the score is built around a song. I don't know if you've seen High Noon or not, but... Mm. It, do not it, forsake me, Owen. Oh do not darling. forsake me, Owen. And, and, and you know what? I only need to hear Tex Ritter sing it once, and I'm I'm good. I'm mm. good for the rest of the movie. But Tiomkin uses it throughout the film, and it won him an Oscar. And this actually sort of goes to something that would continue to plague Herman throughout his career, which is that increasingly in Hollywood, studios wanted something catchy in the music and something that they could tie a soundtrack album to something mm-hmm. that they could get record sales and a single out of. And Herman was not that guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and so Tiomkin winning the Oscar for high noon was really just sort of like really sort of a, a, a harbinger of things to come. But, uh, and then he continued with uh, the B movies in the fifties and 53. He did three scores uh, for Fox white witch doctor. <laughs> which I would love to see. I would love to see that movie just for the title alone. I know Robert Mitchum is in it and Robert Mitchum is fun in everything, but uh, yeah, that's another reason to see it. Yeah, but I haven't seen it. And uh, King of the Kyber rifles, which is an adventure film. And then another one um, beneath the 12 mile reef, which was the first film that uh, he scored that was shot in CinemaScope, and his first score to be recorded in stereo, hmm. which was a big thing for him because there again, he took advantage of that. And he would have different instruments placed around the, the, the recording area. And so, you know, these instruments are going to come from this side of the room and these other instruments are going to come from that side of the room. Again, using the orchestra, using the, the various instruments in the palette and the equipment, the studio and the, the, the ability to record in stereo, using it to create things that were different. Uh, let's see. And 54... Another three movies, only one of which I've seen. He did uh, one of those big epic movies called The Egyptian. And this is the first time he ever collaborated with another guy. In this case, it was the head of the Fox uh, music department, Alfred Newman. Because there was, it was a big movie and there was so much music that had to be done. So they actually split the chores on that one. There were certain motifs and themes that Herman felt that you know he could do. So he concentrated on those and Newman concentrated on other stuff. So you had like... Uh, I think like about an hour and a half of music in that picture. And some of it was Herman. Some of it was Newman. Uh, another movie I never heard of called Prince of Players. And then there was a Western. It's a good Western, but not a great one. It's called Garden of Evil. And, I like uh, that name. Yeah, it's with, uh, it's with Gary Cooper and uh, Richard Widmark. 
And Susan. I like him. Oh, now I'm blanking out on Susan's name. She won the Susan Hayward. Mm. And it's it's a good Western, but not a great one. Actually, the best things in the film, actually, are Herman's music and Richard Widmark, who's just a blast in everything. I mean, Gary Cooper was just kind of, you know, being Gary Cooper by that time. And he's just kind of stoic. Yeah. Eventually, you got to a point in the 50s where Gary Cooper was just kind of, you know, sitting up there on the screen and just laid there. Whereas <laughs> Richard Widmark, I mean, he was the excitable boy at 20th Century Fox. You just, you know, you, you couldn't hold him down. But uh, it's, you know, if you really love Westerns, you, you could see it because it's a good movie. It's available on DVD. Interestingly enough, there's a commentary track on the DVD. All they talk about is Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> there's Stephen C. Smith is on there and Nick Redman, guy who's uh, done some restorations work and produced uh, several... Uh, film music albums and then there's like a couple of other guys who are familiar with bernard herman uh i'm none of them but uh <laughs> but yeah the the whole commentary they're just talking about bernard herman there's this it's nothing else okay well does it say <laughs> in the commentary hey here's a commentary about bernard herman or is it ostensibly about the film and nobody's interested no i think uh well because i think it says like you know uh, bernard herman biographer stephen c smith and, oh, okay. you know like a film you know music producer nick redman or something like that i mean you know it's it's not the kind of film that most people are going to want to get a lot of in-depth information on anyway. <laughs> right. you know, it's kind of like sort of a rip-off of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which, mm. you know, that's not a movie that needs any improving. And it certainly <laughs> didn't get any improving from Garden of Evil. But uh, so now uh, we come to 1955 and let's, you know, let's let's sound the alarms and, and, and raise the trumpets. This is where he finally began working with Alfred Hitchcock, one of the, uh, the, the most fruitful collaborations of his career, probably still the, the best known collaboration between a director and a composer. It's, it, they are the gold standard by which all director-composer relationships are judged even today. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, you, you look at... Uh, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, right. uh, Steven Spielberg and John Williams is another one. Uh, the Coen Brothers and Carter Burwell, mm-hmm. uh, even even you know Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone, who you know they they they're an immortal you know pair. They're forever going to be entwined, despite the fact that they only did like five six pictures together. Mm-hmm. But they're just you know such masterpieces that everybody you know just associates them. And in, I think maybe today, I think we're getting closer to a sort of steady collaboration between Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And the thing is, they uh, Hitchcock and Herman didn't work on like a ton of pictures together, but, you know, they they stand out, you know, and the trouble with Harry was the first one. And it's uh, Hitchcock's version of a comedy. <laughs> in which basically you have a group of people trying to a find love and b lose a dead body. Yeah, that's that's funny. <laughs> I, it is actually it, it it is kind of a you know a, a darkly witty film, but uh, because you know it takes place in in New England in uh, in the autumn you know and and it's just it's a very beautiful film visually and ter- I don't know if you either you've seen it I have not. but uh, it's just I mean this gorgeous Technicolor cinematography with all the you know beautiful gold and brown leaves and everything. it's just very very rich and saturated uh, autumn colors and similarly the score itself is very rich and saturated and and autumnal and pastoral and there's little you know touches of dark you know whimsy in there and it's just one of the instances that i always like to point to about 
the uh, you know his facility Herman's facility with a melody was in the trouble with Harry there's a really just a beautiful beautiful piece that I just love every time I hear it and uh, the cue is called tea time and it's just such a, a gorgeous melody uh, you know everybody would just fall in love with it I think when this is what you were talking about early on right when you when, when you we talked about the I keep forgetting what they're called. Ostentados? Ostentados. Ostentados. Yeah. Ostentados is and there are they're delicious. Ost- and there are ostentados in, in, you know, there there is one in The Trouble with Harry. The main, you know, thing that keeps coming up in Trouble there is uh, dun, 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 dun. And it, it pops up throughout the film. And in fact, if you all want to hear it and you don't want to take the trouble to see The Trouble with Harry, which you should anyway, uh, <laughs> go and YouTube a commercial. That was on TV last year. They used music from The Trouble with Harry in a commercial for the Volkswagen CC. Hmm. And you can find it on YouTube because I, I went because I didn't. I, I, of course, I'm not paying attention to the car. So I had to go on <laughs> YouTube and find that because it's like, you know, I'm sure everybody else is looking at the, the commercial going, ooh, shiny German engineering, whatever. And it's like, I'm like, hey, that's Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that every natural disaster the Earth has endured since that time is the direct result of Herman roiling in his grave over <laughs> the, the, the use of his music in a commercial. But uh, Now, are we but, going to be playing uh, a bit of uh, The Trouble with Harry? Tea time. All right, tea yeah. time. We'll do that, and we'll, we'll meet you right back here. Oh my! Wasn't that nice? <laughs> I, I, I got to run out and buy me a Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where are we now? Well, so then the next uh, Hitchcock and Herman collaboration was uh, his, her Hitchcock's remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, mm-hmm. because you know he had made that film. Uh, Peter Lorre was in it in the the 30s, and yeah. then he remade it in 1956 with uh, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. Now, here again, here is a really interesting example of Herman knowing when to step back. I mean, for starters, um, it is his uh, screen debut as a performer, because in the climactic scene, which, you know, takes place at, uh, you know, uh, 
Albert Hall in mm-hmm. London. It's a uh, it, it is a, a concert performance, an orchestral performance with orchestra and choir, and it even says in the advertisements outside that it's conducted by Bernard Herrmann, uh-huh. and there he is. He's there <laughs> in the film, you know, conducting the uh, the orchestra during this this you know amazing uh, climactic sequence, and uh, the thing is that piece of music. He didn't write it. Uh-huh. It's not his. It's a piece called Storm Clouds. It's a cantata written by uh, a British composer named of Arthur Benjamin. And it's the same piece of music that they used for the same climactic moment in the original version of the film. Uh, hmm. Now, here is a moment where Herman, clearly, he could have gotten like a big 10-minute chunk of film to just run riot with the London Symphony Orchestra and a giant, massive choir. But instead, he said, well, what you got here is perfect. Uh-huh. We should just we're just going to go with this. Hmm. And so he reorchestrated it a little bit, you know, just doubled up on some instruments, made it, you know, bigger and, and heavier. And they actually, you know, in order to fit the timing of all the action that Hitchcock had planned for this sequence, they needed an extra 80 seconds of music. So they went to Arthur Benjamin and said, could you, you know, fill this out a little bit? And he did. Uh-huh. So, again, it- you know, Herman could have done something and he did. They, you know, they just went with with. Uh, Arthur Benjamin. That is a general lack of ego. That's, yeah, this means something you were referencing earlier, Tyler, just like supporting the film first. Right. You know, uh, as, yeah. as much of a musical genius as he was, he knew when he was working in film that he was serving the film. Right. And he, you know, he had very strong ideas of, you know, what what the film needed. And one of the other things he felt the film needed was not too much Bernard Herrmann music. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, there's a really, you know, big, you know, loud piece of music at the beginning of the, the opening credits. But then throughout most of the film, there's not a lot of music. And that was intentional on his part because then it makes the storm clouds moment that much more important and that much more exciting. You know, if you haven't heard too much music up to that time, you know, when you get to this big climactic sequence that hinges on a piece of music. So, again, that's, you know, it just really shows how selfless he could be because they're, they're really he didn't put in that much music up to that time. And also, there's really a great little visual joke in the scene because the whole point of the thing is that at the end of Storm Clouds, uh, the percussionist is going to, you know, crash a big pair of cymbals together. And when that happens, uh, somebody's going to get killed. Uh-huh. You know, a gunshot's going to, you know, come and, you know, the crash of the symbols is going to disguise the gunshot. So, you know, the bad guys can get away with it. And there's this really great shot of the percussionist sitting on a chair. His symbols are sitting on chairs beside him and he's looking at his sheet music and they cut to a shot of the sheet music and it just bars and bars and bars like nothing, 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 <laughs> nothing. Symbols. <laughs> and that's it. That's all he's waiting for. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And again, and. And also, here again is another instance where, you know, something comes up where that they can have a song. He did not write the song, but Que Sera Sera, mm-hmm. which is a song that Doris Day sings in the film, became a wildly popular song. Uh, you know, people you know still know it today. He didn't have anything to do with it. It was written by a pair of songwriters named of Jay Livingstone and Ray Evans, won them the Oscar. Mm-hmm. But again, it was, uh, you know, just sort of another, another blow <laughs> against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the kind of music that he was doing and, you know, more studios wanting that kind of, you know, pop music in the film, something that they could sell. Because, again, you know, in the, I believe it was in the 60s or late, maybe the late 50s when MGM started their own record label, you know, because they wanted to, you know, move some product. Warner mm-hmm. Brothers started their own record label in the 60s. So, but, uh, you know, overall is a really good work. And uh, in The Man Who Knew Too Much. And also he did a really good job of, uh, 
of orchestrating storm clouds because I mean it's it's big and it's it's just beautiful. It sounds wonderful. Um, then he also did uh, the wrong man with uh, with Hitchcock, and that was uh, another interesting film where he was um, Hitchcock was sort of trying to go for all this sort of almost documentarian kind of feel hmm. with because because it was based on a true story. There's a Henry Fonda is playing a guy who was you know. Uh, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the main theme that runs throughout many of Hitchcock's films. Only in this case, it was real. This guy named Manny well, Balistrero. I, I think he was correctly accused of a crime he didn't commit. And he was falsely accused of a crime he did commit. Well, uh, yeah, they accused him. Then, and then, and <laughs> Why they, are you insulting the guest? <laughs> I'm just saying. It's a bit like a double negative to say he was falsely yeah, that's accused. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just the standard <laughs> phrase. He was falsely accused of a crime. Well, no, no. no but <laughs> they did a very good job of accusing him of right. a crime he didn't commit. But Wrongly is, accused. They're yeah. just like, you didn't do this. Damn it. <laughs> I really screwed that up. Can we try this again? But it's, it's terrible what happened to that guy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they, they accused him. And, you know, witnesses came out and said, yep, that's the guy. And, and he was arrested and he was tried. And then only you know through a fluke they uh they actually found the other guy meanwhile his wife had had a nervous breakdown and she went in the sanitarium and it's really kind of sad that you know you know at the end of the movie there's a little you know title card that says well you know the wife recovered and then they moved to florida and they lived happily ever after that's something that the studio insisted on the truth of the matter is the wife never recovered and the family was destroyed guide everybody (laughs) but um and the thing is is that uh you know Manny Bellastrero was a a bass player. He played bass in an upright bass in a nightclub. And so there's a prominent use of bass in the score for The Wrong Man. And in a lot of times, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's sort of used to to heighten the tension because it's, you know, almost like a heartbeat mm-hmm. on, on the soundtrack, almost subliminally. And again, that's, you know, a very, very clever use of, uh, of instrumentation there. Um, the only other interesting thing about that is that... Uh, he Herman got into a salary dispute with Warner Brothers uh, over the the, uh, the wrong man, and he never worked for that studio again. <laughs> wow, he strikes me as the type that could hold a grudge. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but it, by the same token, I mean, you know, look at what they did, what RKO did to um, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons. I mean, they mm-hmm. you know they butchered that, and yet 1951, he goes back to RKO to work on on Dangerous Ground, mm-hmm. and you know, Robert Wise was the editor who was largely responsible for, you know, breaking down the Magnificent Ambersons. And yet he, you know, Herman went to work for Robert Wise when he was a director and Wise directed The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh-huh. So, you know, some things he's willing to forgive, some things not so much, I guess. Yeah. Do you think it's, I mean, just with On Dangerous Ground or The Day the Earth Stood Still, just the material he felt was worth his talents, uh, despite any di- differences he might well, again, with On Dangerous Ground, I think it might have been more a favor being called in from John Hausman because, I mean, it's a very good film noir, but it's not even one of Nicholas Ray's best film noirs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a guy who's directed some magnificent pictures. There's there's good stuff in it. And Herman's score for On Dangerous Ground is, you know, I mean, it's in some ways it's it's more than than that film might have needed. <laughs> in some mm-hmm. instances, it's, it's pretty bombastic in places. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think it might have been more to do with uh, with John Hausman. I think if it, I suspect if it had been anybody else who asked him to go back to RKO and work on that, he would have said no. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just my opinion. Um, and that brings us to uh, 1958, the uh, the fourth Herman Hitchcock collaboration. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, their best. I mean, I know there's some people who have differing opinions about that, but Vertigo is arguably the the pinnacle of Herman's career 
and I definitely feel that it is the pinnacle of his collaboration with Hitchcock. Um, it, well, Tyler and I are both on the record as saying it's the pinnacle of Hitchcock's career as well. I would oh, say sure. so, yeah. I think it's. It, it took me a while to warm to the film. When I first saw it, I thought it was pretty slow, but I was also kind of young. And not I was to mention, used to Psycho and Not stuff to mention the movie. pinnacle of James Stewart's career, Jimmy Stewart. I'd say that's right. Yeah. Probably the pinnacle of Kim Novak's career. Yeah. I disagree. <laughs> no, Strangers When We Meet was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Bell, book, and candle. Who are you kidding? <laughs> um, but yeah, do you want to uh, talk about Vertigo or should we perhaps give a listen first? We should listen to uh, some of the, uh, the the prelude for Vertigo, okay. which is remarkable, not just in the fact that, you know, it's as beautiful as it is. But, you know, at that time, and then, you know, talking about the 1940s and 50s, you know, even in the late 50s, the, the, you know, the studio era is sort of coming to a close. They always wanted to get those opening credits over with pretty quick. Yeah. You're talking like a minute, a minute and a half tops. The opening credits for Vertigo, Hitchcock gives Bernard Herrmann three minutes to do his work. Mm-hmm. You got three minutes of Bernard Herrmann's music and Saul Bass, uh, you know, designed the titles uh-huh. and it, it sets the mood like, you know, very few other films have done before or since. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Mood set. Yeah. And, exactly. And the film is also remarkable for the, I mean, it really afforded Herman so many opportunities as far as music. There are long stretches of time in that film where there is no dialogue. All there is is just, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Scotty is uh, following Madeline around and, you know, or, you know, maybe somebody's, you know, suffering a nightmare or something good is happening or something bad is happening or something wonderfully romantic is happening and nobody's talking. Mm-hmm. It's just visuals and it's music. By this time, Hitchcock was, you know, he, he had so much trust 
for Bernard Herman, and he knew what he was capable of. I mean, you know, that's so, you know, in the notes, you know, for some of the films and he was working at that point, you know, where they were, you know, noting, you know, sound effects cues and, you know, various things. He would actually write in, you know, Mr. Herman may have something to add here. So hmm. he 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 knew what what he had in his corner and he was determined to use it. And, you know, Herman really seized that opportunity. The uh, the scene where. You know, the girl comes out of, you know, and, and she now looks like another girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, there's almost no dialogue in in that uh, in that scene. And Herman just runs with it. There's one of the most achingly beautiful romantic pieces of music that you know has ever been in a film definitely you know tops in in his canon it's just beautiful and the beauty of it and the 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 heightened emotion of it only serves to make the tragic ending that much more tragic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you know that's the scene where you think well you know okay we got it you know everything he he got the girl and everything is going to be wonderful despite the fact that it's so psychologically disturbing yeah what he's what he's really doing there and it was i mean it's it's a an unconventional film and a psychologically sort of out there film let's use a technical term uh and also hitchcock had you know a uh you know on all his films had a even when they weren't as weirdly personal as vertigo probably was about his own obsessions and stuff had a reputation for being very controlling and i think it speaks a lot about his faith in bernard herman that he would continue to work with someone who was so uh i i guess i i'm not going to i'm going to guess bernard herman wasn't the type of person who was easily cowed no. Yeah, and, and, and so I think it uh, it it speaks speaks a lot that that it says a lot that Hitchcock, who was such a controlling person, would would uh, entrust him time after time. And with and with Vertigo, I do rem- as I mentioned when I first saw it, I I, I lost interest in it because I think I was just too young and I was I was lo- I was expecting it to be something that it wasn't. And uh, but when I saw it again, I remember the first time I really saw it uh, was with you. Um, and that's me, David. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> I never lived with West Anthony <laughs> yet. Anyway, so uh, so, and I remember that that sequence of Jimmy Stewart follow, just constantly following, constantly watching. That was actually the sequence that lost me when I first saw it, mm-hmm. um, because you know it happens pretty quick. You don't really get to know a lot of the characters yeah. uh, before that, and. Um, and so I just I, I didn't feel invested. When I watch it now and I see that sequence, you realize just how much the how, not how not merely how big of a role the music plays, but how crucial a role that it plays because we haven't really gotten to know these characters that much. We don't really know the situation. All we know is that we're intrigued, and the really the only way we know that is, of course, the performances, the the silent performances, right. and the music saying. This is intriguing. You need to be intrigued without ever being over, you know, overplaying that hand. Yes. And the music, you know, in, at times also speaks for Scotty's state of mind. It speaks mm-hmm. for his yearning. It speaks for his longing and his emotion when he himself does not say anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just it really is just an enormous contribution to the success of that film. And, you know, again, uh, no Oscar nomination. What are you going to do? Of course not. I get it. <laughs> yeah. He clearly peaked with Devil and Daniel Webster. <laughs> but, uh, and, 
also, uh, this was one of the scores that, you know, because, again, Herman conducted the CBS Orchestra on the radio for years and years and years. Uh, this was the first of his scores that he did not get to conduct himself hmm. because there was a musician strike here in Los Angeles at that time. That, so they had to record the score over in, in England. So they went to London, and it was conducted by uh, Muir Matheson, and predictably uh, Herman was not enthralled with the results, but he didn't have any choice. As a, as a member of the Musicians' Union, he... Even going over there, he could not conduct it. I had a question about that, actually. And this might take us, uh, I know that we have to keep moving, but uh, this might take us in a slightly different direction, at least for a few minutes. Um, I don't know much about music, and I don't know how big of a role the conductor plays. It would seem, to somebody who doesn't know anything, like myself, that the conductor, really their job is just to keep things moving along, but everyone has the music in front of them. They know what they're supposed to do. Perhaps you, can you speak to that? Like, how big of a role does a conductor play? I wish I could, because I'm not, you know, I I never, you know, studied music. I can't, you know, read or write music. I, it's weird. There's sort of a genetic instinct for music in my family. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, although, you know, I can't really speak about it with any authority. And yet, nevertheless, I, I have this weird ability to generate harmony. It's like if if somebody is singing a song and like you know I, I like to sing along to songs that I, and and if somebody is singing too high I'll just listen to it a few times and I can just generate my own harmony line uh-huh. because because I'm that determined to sing along with it and also my <laughs> father and my brother are both uh, you know self taught musicians mm-hmm. you know and you know they both uh, you know my father is uh, is a great uh, uh, pianist uh, my brother uh, plays the bass and they both had bands uh, over the years. Uh, you know, never, you know, never like on a super professional level. Mm-hmm. But uh, although my, my brother was friends with uh, uh, Kurt Cobain before he hit the big time. Mm-hmm. So I got to actually got to hang out with him one night. And that's oh. that's that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Indeed. I'll have to have you back for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, is that like, I don't know. I get it, it's the only thing it I know seems f- strange to me that that the score could turn out so different or so. Admittedly, maybe the differences are small, but when you've written the score, you know every, every uh, right what you would have done. Um, but it seems strange to me that it could make such a huge difference to Bernard Herrmann that somebody else. Uh, well, it might know. just have been ego on his part. Okay. You know? <laughs> okay. But I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure the conductor must have a, a lot of importance because otherwise, you know, they, you know, somebody, somebody in marketing would have done away with him a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it? I don't know. Maybe it's. I keep asking as as though uh, the answer is going to change. But I guess to me, it's maybe it has something to do with like the conductor is the one who sign, signals to someone how hard they should hit something or oh, how sure. soft they I'm should sure hit something. Some of that is involved. Yeah. And then, but also, you know, and in tempo uh, also has something to do with it. Although, as far as film goes, the tempo is kind of set in stone. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but. Uh, and and actually that also shows in like when Herman uh, conducted his scores just, you know, for recording purposes, you know, he made records, you know, later on in the 60s where he recorded some of his, his scores. And you can notice that the tempo is noticeably slower in the stuff that he conducted for the records mm-hmm. from the stuff, you know, that, you know, as it appears in the film. In fact, that's why uh, in the mid 90s, uh, the film music. Uh, record label called Veray's Saraband. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the mid-90s, they actually started this whole program of recording a bunch of Bernard Herrmann scores. Most of them were conducted by Joel McNeely, who was uh, a composer in his own right uh, for for film and television. He did, like, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and some other things. But And 
he was like one of the first guys to actually, you know, conduct these scores at the tempo that we are familiar with from the films. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people conducting, you know, music from psycho and it's just, it's too slow. It's too slow. Speed it up. Let's go. <laughs> he was the first one who got it right as far as mm-hmm. I was concerned. Uh-huh. So, and there's, there's a whole bunch of his scores that, I mean, some of them I think aren't available now. I mean, he's the first guy to conduct the complete score for citizen Kane on, on hmm. CD, oh. you know, but uh, yeah. So, Back to the Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Well, actually, we'll take a brief detour from Hitchcock for a moment because in the same year, 1958, he also began another sort of uh, collaboration, this time with uh, Ray Harryhausen. Because oh, right. they did right. uh, four films together, and this was uh, the first one was in 1958 with uh, The Voyage of Sinbad, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And that was, you know, I mean, it wasn't so much a director-composer relationship because Harryhausen didn't direct any of those films, but he did the special effects for all of them, and they were all produced by Charles H. Schneer. <laughs> and uh, they only did four of them, you know, because, you know, they kept doing, you know, Harryhausen Dynamation films on into the 60s and into the 70s. Uh, but the the money kept uh, diminishing. Mm-hmm. That's why eventually Herman just stopped after four. But, you know, the seventh voyage of Sinbad uh, was one. And then uh, there was uh, several others. Some people seemed to lump Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, in with those. But that was that was not uh, Harryhausen. But. So, is it a fair assumption that he got these these jobs? I make it sound I make it sound like Bernard Herman's just out begging on the street or something. <laughs> but uh, that he was tapped to to or, you know compose the score for you know Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and these kind of fantastical films as a result of Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, that's where I would it I would could assume be. that. Because there's, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, fantasy material up to that time when suddenly he started doing, you know, the, the Harryhausen films. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, there's, you know, he's got several under his belt. Yeah. But he'd also done, you mentioned those uh, B-movies for Fox. That's true. It seemed like he had, like, uh, sort of uh, two sort of uh, through lines in his career, these these sort of uh, bigger, I don't know, you know, Vertigo, even like Snows of right. Manjaro and, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh you know, more, I guess, quote-unquote, serious pictures or A pictures well, if somebody, and then genre films. If somebody wanted him enough, I think that's part of it. But then another thing to consider is that now we're getting towards the late 50s, and by this time, you know, radio was definitely on the downswing in terms of, you know, the kind of ubiquity and popularity that it had, because now you have television in the home. Mm-hmm. The CBS uh, orchestra was disbanded, you know, uh, by the late 50s. And so, you know, now he needs more work. Right. Mm-hmm. So that leads to, you know, to other things. And, you know, and then getting into television, because then, you know, around 1959, 1960, you know, he started working on the Twilight Zone. Uh-huh. He did the first Twilight Zone theme, not, you know, the immortal one that we all know and love today, but, you know, the one he did one before that. There was another one before then. And he did seven, uh, you know, memorable Twilight Zone episodes, mm-hmm. including the very first one, you know, Where Is Everybody? And then, and he did, uh, you know, a little girl. Wait, wait which one is Where Is Everybody? That's the one with uh, Earl Holloman. He's this, you know, astronaut, and he's like wandering around this town, and there's nobody there, and he's going nuts. And then it turns out that it's all a hallucination in his mind because they have him in the isolation. Oh, yes. They're trying to find out, you know, what kind of effects isolation will have on a spaceman. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, that's, that's a, you know, an immortal episode. And then also there's Little Girl Lost. Remember the one where the, the you know, little girl, she falls out of bed and she's in the fourth dimension. And then their their dad's got to go in after her. You ever see that one? I, I have not. That, seen, that one does not. Wow, I haven't seen a single episode oh, of the Twilight well, Zone. It's such a great one because he's got to you know go through the wall because it's some, somehow some some temporary uh, you know 
hole between the dimensions has opened up in the, the bedroom with this little girl. And he's got to go through the one. And of course, you know, it's television. They don't have a lot of money. And so the whole, the whole fourth dimension effect is basically they're just slowly rotating the camera and it's an empty set with a lot of fog. And they're using these, you know, weird lenses to warp everybody's picture. But the music sells it because uh-huh. Herman just comes up with this really, you know, weird, creepy piece of music that's all like flutes and a harp and some strings. <laughs> Sorry, Tyler. Did you say you've never seen an episode of The Twilight Zone? Uh, I might have missed that. Ma- that makes I've me seen... feel better about not seeing Little Girl Lost because at least I've seen. <laughs> you know what? Some. I think I've I think I've seen like the ones that ev- that everybody has seen. I saw uh, Burgess Meredith. Uh, I don't remember right. the name of that one where he just wants to read. I think it was Time Enough at Last. That's ah, one, yeah, it's nice. that's one of my favorites. And then of course the the one with all the ugly people and right, uh, Eye yeah. of the Beholder. Right. What about yeah. Living Doll? I don't think I saw that. I don't one. think I've seen That's that one. That's the one with Telly Savalas. And oh, yeah, I've he's seen dead that one. And, and his yeah. little girl has the, the talking Tina doll, uh-huh. which is voiced by uh, June Foray. And the doll you know, just begins you know, becoming more and more malevolent, and Telly Savalas wants to get rid of it, and it's not going to go away, and then it kills him. Yeah, you and, know which one I... Herman scored that one as well. Uh, you know which one I love, and I want to talk about whether Bernard Herman did it or not, but the one with <laughs> Agnes Moorhead? Do you, do you know the one? She's, the Visitors. The Visitors, is that... Yeah. She's alone, and then the yes. little spaceship comes down. Yeah, he didn't do that one, but yeah, that's that's, that's, a, that's one a marvelous episode. Favorite. And it, and it always like there's a uh, there's a Stephen King short story about a guy being attacked by like the army men that he has in his apartment come to life and actually like wage war. <laughs> and it always reminds me of the visitors because it's a, the, the Green story. Mile. Is that the yeah? One no, it's about? a short story. It's in Nightmares <laughs> and Dreamscapes. I can't remember the Little what, Green Mile. What it's called? It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I love that. I love that episode. Yeah, you should you there's should so check out ones. that Agnes Moorhead one. You need to get. Into I like Agnes Moorhead. There's I mean there's. There's really no real dialogue in that entire episode. There's there's no dialogue. Her until, like, sort of the very end. The very end. Yeah, she sort have, of grunting. She does not have a single line in that movie. She just carries it, just you know, with you know her facial expressions and her body movements. That's I mean, and again, you know, so all those people who are just familiar with Agnes Moorhead is like you know what was it Eudora on Bewitched? That's <laughs> that was where she gained her greatest fame as an actor was on Bewitched, mm-hmm. which, you know, was kind of the bane of her existence, really. But, I mean, you know, you see all of the stuff that she was really capable of when you go back and look at other movies, that, she, that Twilight Zone episode, The Magnificent Amberson, she was just so brilliant. And, and For which she movies, got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other movies that uh, you just go back and look at them because she really was great. Caged is one that's one of my favorite movies that a lot of people don't talk about, but that's it was a women in prison movie. I just heard you talk about that on your show. <laughs> yeah, because I love that movie so much. It's a women in prison movie from 1950, and she plays the uh, the warden of the women's prison. And I you bet know. she'd be awesome as a warden. <laughs> She's great. Everybody, oh, everybody in that movie is great. Everybody should see Caged. It's so good. But, all right, that's all enough right. with the tangents. Let's get back to 1959. So now, right? yeah, now again, another really uh, memorable Herman Hitchcock collaboration was North by Northwest, mm. which uh, is just you know such a just. It, it's so much fun. The score is just adventurous and it's, you know, boisterous and there's, you know, it's not too terribly serious. There's moments of suspense here and there, but overall, I mean, it's like you listen to the music and the, the, the opening of the film, it really just says, you know, this is going to be fun. You know, look, it's, it's Cary Grant. He's got a nice suit. He's going to be fine. Don't worry. Have fun. <laughs> Sit back and enjoy. Cause that's what it is, you know? But, uh, <laughs> and, and this is the time when, you know, this, this is his opportunity to work for MGM because Hitchcock was, you know, need, he did uh, North by Northwest at MGM, so Hitchcock finally got to work there. 
But uh, and here again is another really good example of of Herman knowing when to hang back. The immortal crop duster scene. Mm-hmm. There's no music in there until right. you get to the very end. Then he lays it in. But until then, it's just nothing, and it's perfect because you know it enhances the isolation of Cary Grant. You know, out there in the middle of nowhere, just waiting for you know some guy to show up and run him over with a plane. Yeah, and it also brings. I mean, the the sort of uh, the sound of the plane being like. Sort of like how with the birds, it's the sound of the birds that's almost like the score in that in that in that scene, the sound of the plane getting closer and then going away, you Indeed. know, is uh, uh, it's score enough on its own. Yeah. So I mean, it's and it's, it's the the score and the film is just fun, fun, fun. You know, there's there's you know it, you can enjoy it all the long day. And also in that same year, he did uh, another kind of fantasy film, but not with uh, Harryhausen. It was for another one for Fox, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And this is another one where he kind of, you know, went nuts with the orchestration. Uh, no strings. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, uh, he was saving them all. Yeah. For uh, all the, uh, Psycho. Yeah, all the <laughs> instruments are played in the lower registers. Uh, there's like uh, woodwinds, brass, harps, percussion, five organs. <laughs> one cathedral <laughs> organ, four electronic organs. And it's just, you know, it's, it's so weird. But uh, and again, it's, it's one it of those sounds like the way you describe it. And I, I don't know this. I haven't actually seen the movie, but it sounds like something that maybe uh, is a precursor to Black Sabbath. <laughs> like, <laughs> like no, or Deep Purple. I don't know. Yeah. But, but like organs, lower register, like kind of. Yeah. But and, and it really it helps because the movie actually it's, it's not that good. <laughs> huh. it's, you know, I mean, James Mason is in it and he's he's always fun. But then you got Pat Boone with just, you know, the most obnoxious, you know, Scottish accent that you know just goes <laughs> in and out. It's terrible, terrible. Oh, but I don't know. Which, uh, of course, uh, speaking of uh, terrible Scottish accents, that brings us to Psycho. <laughs> You've lost me. Um, I've lost myself. What was I? I'm still drunk. No. And of course, I mean, this is if uh, there's plenty of people who aren't that familiar with North by Northwest. There's sadly even fewer people who are that familiar with Vertigo. Everybody knows Psycho. Everybody and their pet parakeet knows at least, uh, you know, two bars of music from Psycho. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, they're, they're fairly inescapable. I mean, John Williams, you know, was kind of inspired by that, you know, when it came to, you know, writing the score for Jaws. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, the, 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 the influence is, is obvious. And here again, the, the really creative uh, orchestration is it's just strings. Strings only. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. You know? And it really, it's kind of, if you think about it, it was kind of a challenge for him because all of the usual stuff that you can do in horror movies with music, you, he really couldn't do them, not with just strings, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, it just, he, he took that challenge and he just really ran with it. I mean, the opening titles uh, for Psycho, and, and again, that's, that's close to two minutes right there. But, you know, there's a lot of economy in that film. So, you know, three minutes like for Vertigo wouldn't really have been proper. Mm -hmm. But again, all you have, you have Herman's music, you have Saul Bass's incredible graphics. And also you'll notice that the only below the line talent that gets their name in the credits in as large a type size as the stars and the director is Bernard Herman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's and and also the you know the placement of his name he's he's the last name that go, gets on the screen before you see directed by Alfred Hitchcock mm. and again it speaks to you know the trust that Hitchcock had for him and the uh, the the enormous influence that he had over the success of the film 
Because now here is a, an example that's kind of the opposite of the, the other things that we discussed. This is an example. Hitchcock wanted no music for the shower sequence. Mm-hmm. All he just all he wanted you to hear was water and screaming and stabbing. That uh-huh. was it. And, you know, after they wrapped up shooting and they're in post-production, he went away on a vacation to, you know, Europe or some such place. And Herman was, you know, he was working on the film and he was having none of it. <laughs> he, he wrote a piece of music to go with the shower sequence. And Hitchcock comes back and, you know, it, it could have easily gone the other way. But, you know, they, they played him the scene without the music. And then Herman said, now, let me show you something that I cooked up. Mm-hmm. And then they showed Hitchcock the scene with the music and Hitchcock turned right around and apologized to Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> you were a hundred percent right. And you know, the rest is history, but there's not music in that whole scene. It's only, no. it's only when the the curtain is pulled back, right? Like the, the shape, the dark shape, just getting closer and closer and closer yeah. to the shower. That's all silent. And there again, that's something where, you know, Plenty of other composers would have, you know, just been building up steadily with the orchestra, you know, trying to, you know, to goose up the suspense, which is totally unnecessary. I mean, look, yeah. you see the shadow, you know, something bad's going to happen because there shouldn't be anybody else in that bathroom. Uh-huh. So and he <laughs> just he just lets it go until that one moment. And then, boom. Yeah, because the, it's a moment of true horror. It's no longer suspense. This is the payoff. And so musically, there should be a payoff as well. David, I interrupted. What yeah, I feel it also makes it it makes it more graphic because it's not you know this is 1960 or whatever it's not a particularly graphic scene there is blood in it but you don't i don't think you see the knife plunging into her skin at any point but uh it sort of reminds me of uh at the beginning of uh early in david fincher's alien 3 when they're doing the uh autopsy on newt and you don't actually see newt's dead body but you see the doctor pick up this instrument to like crack her chest open and then you hear like (laughs) Yeah. And it's you can see it in your mind, and I feel like those sort of stabs of strings are almost almost like uh, the like if, if you were to draw the knife moving through the air in in a cartoon, those would be the lines coming off the knife yeah. to indicate its its forward velocity, and it, and it and it it makes it more violent. Yeah, and I feel like that scene, of course, then in, informs the later scene. One of my favorite scenes of suspense, one that still gets me. Which is the death of Martin Balsam. Yeah. Which is as he's going up the stairs. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there's any music as he's walking up the stairs. There's plenty of close-ups on, like, his hand and there stuff is like actually, that. There is, is there actually a, a, a little bit of music when, when he's walking up. But, again, it's not like he's building up suspense. It's just sort of, you know, just very soft, eerie, you know, chords with the, with the violins as he's walking up the stairs. And again, see the fact that you didn't think there was any music. It means that, you know, Herman's really doing his right. job and just contributing to the mood without being really ostentatious about it. And what's more is he's contributing to the mood without telling you exactly what's going to happen. Right. Martin Balsam. Yes, he could die or he could find something grisly. Right. It could, it could be either one in which case, Either one, it's appropriate to have suspenseful music. But then, of course, he gets to the... And I love the way it's shot as well, where it's just suspense, suspense, suspense. And then, like, an abrupt payoff that even though you know you're leading towards something, when it comes, it's very shocking and very uh, frightening. And I did want to I did want to speak about uh, the opening music from Psycho. Well, what music are we going to hear from Psycho here? 
well, again, everybody's familiar with the music from the murder, from the shower uh-huh. scene. But the, the opening music is really just, it's really remarkable. Yeah. And then after you're done hearing it, then I'm going to lay a little bit of trivia on you that may or may not blow your mind. Okay. Uh, well, if, since that's what we're playing, I'll actually uh, say what I was going to say, which is... Uh, the nature of what Psycho is and what Hitchcock wanted it to be means that there is going to be so much pressure on that opening bit of music because we're not totally sure what we're going to see. It's called Psycho, so we're not, at the time even, it's like, uh, the term wasn't immediately applied to people who just killed indiscriminately and were <laughs> right. crazy and were just straight up murderously crazy. Um, and so we're not... And we know that Hitchcock is fun and, you know, is even the murders are kind of fun, you know, but then so we think we're probably going to see like a fun movie in which this woman uh, steals some money and we're not really sure what's going to happen to her. And so that opening music, I think it kind of has a nice forward momentum like it's like once the I was going to say once the strings come in, they're all strings. But, uh, you know, the dun dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. That part's fun, but then it goes. Dun. Then the part where I I don't want to go. Dun. I don't want to do that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but it starts off just seeming like like it's it's very fun, and then this uh, continuous theme comes in after a while, and that adds a, an era an air of like melancholy to the whole thing, where suddenly you realize like oh this is fun, but it's still it's still telegraphing what the movie's actually going to be as opposed to what we think it's going to be. But it still needs to kind of give a little fake towards what we all think it's going to be. I love that opening music, and I well, think I think that might be my favorite bit of his of his music. But we'll listen to it. Yeah, let's hear it now. Right now. Okay, trivia. Okay, now, 
the music for Psycho, that music you were just listening to, okay, uh, that is an acknowledged influence on what insanely popular song of the 60s? Um, I'm going to go... Uh, Tiptoe through the tulips. I'm going to go The Sound of Silence. Eleanor Rigby. Ah. Oh, yeah, I could if see you that. you think about it, yeah. yeah. I mean, because again, you know, George Martin, the the widely acknowledged fifth Beatle, I mean, he uh-huh. was responsible for, you know, doing all the stuff that wasn't, you know, like playing guitars and bass and drums and occasional piano. He was, you know, when, when the Beatles had, you know, an insane musical idea or some something that they wanted to do with, you know, orchestral instruments, he was the go-to guy. He was the guy who took care of that stuff for them. And he was the one who orchestrated the strings for Eleanor Rigby. And he has gone on record as saying that Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho was the principal influence for the music, you know, the orchestration with the strings that George Martin came up with for Eleanor Rigby. And now that you mention it, it's I'm shocked I it wasn't more obvious to me because it's very... Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a clear influence. Yeah, now, you, know, you, you put the two together, and it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. But it's just, you know, nobody thinks of the Beatles and Eleanor Rigby and, and shower murders. It's just, you know, <laughs> nobody really puts that stuff together. But, you know, then again, maybe that's how Eleanor Rigby got it. I'm just, yeah, exactly. You know, All right. Janet Lee, she's one of the lonely people. All right. <laughs> so, progressing into the 60s, there's still, you know, more uh, Harryhausen films, The Three Worlds of Gulliver and uh, Mysterious Island in uh, 1961, which is just, you know, Big, loud, scary music, <laughs> and, and it works very well with the film. And uh, also around this time, this is a weird thing. Speaking of the Beatles, uh, this is around the time that Bernard Herrmann claims to have discovered them. Um, <laughs> he was over in England, and I guess he, you know, he picked up some some records. He claimed to have picked up some records and demos of theirs, and he was knocked out by their sound. And he brought the, the records back to the United States and tried to convince everybody. So he claims he went ran around trying to convince all these, you know, r- record companies that you know you should release these guys. And they said no. Okay, well, and I I I'm not entirely sure I believe it, but it's. And this is what I read I, in his biography. I'm going to choose to. I'm going to yeah. choose to believe it. It seems fun. It just yeah. it's it's fun to think about it. Yeah. But uh, and then also around that time, '62, uh, he was offered the opportunity to work on Lolita. Hmm. Uh, Kubrick asked him to do it, and Herman was intrigued. But then uh, Kubrick said something that was a big no-no, which is that well, you also have to use this little tune that was uh, put together by my brother-in-law, and <laughs> and Herman said uh, no, no, that's not going to happen. And so Nelson Riddle got that job, and he did in fact incorporate that's Lolita's theme in the film. It was written by Kubrick's brother-in-law. <laughs> But uh, so it would have been very different if Herman had done it. Uh, then you get Kubrick's 19... brother-in-law, by the way. He made he he's the one who made Stanley Kubrick a Life in Pictures. Am I right? The documentary. About... I'm not sure if it was that same guy. Well, it might have been. I I'm, I think is I'm not clear on the name. I just know the story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's just and it's just so weird that anybody but... would would make that demand of Bernard. You got to use this this thing that. A family member came up with. This is uh, yeah more more like a little trivia. Kubrick's in laws were related to the film. I, I saw the documentary about him recently. Uh, Harlan Veit is that his name? Who was a German filmmaker who essentially agreed to make a film like a film for the Reich, the Third Reich that was yeah it was horribly like I... anti. Uh, yeah, uh, and then they made a documentary. Jewish, Jew sus, I believe the yes. name of it was. Mm. Yeah, yes, it's yeah. a it's a good documentary it's and um, a good documentary about a very dark chapter in in international film history. Yeah, and it, and it ruined this guy's career. And I mean, uh, and yeah. I, I I would say rightly so. He did 
collaborate, but uh, it's still a documentary that's very much worth watching because it's it's more about the yeah, uh, the sort of I want to see that the, the the later it, it's it, it it uses this story to explore the later generation just the impact that uh, that legacy has on later generations of people whose ancestors were. Yeah. Nazis. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I really want to get to so, that. Yeah, check days. out Juices. But uh, now we do need to uh, we do need to move on. Now the three of us did agree to talk about two movies specifically, which is Cape Fear and Taxi Driver. Well, Cape but Fear we're going to be is that the next one? That's the very okay. next one. <laughs> I just I, what I wanted to do is like we're definitely going to talk about those two, but I also don't want to give you know short shrift to any movie that you specifically think needs to be discussed. Yeah, well, I mean this this. There's a few other uh, Hitchcock-Herman collaborations which we can get to, but uh, right now, Cape Fear was what, mm-hmm. 1962 was the original one, uh-huh. yeah. directed by J. Lee Thompson, with uh, with Gregory Peck and and Robert Mitchum, of course, and uh, again, you know, doing weird things with the the orchestration. There's mm-hmm. uh, you got flutes, uh, no other woodwinds, horns, but no trumpets, mm-hmm. and strings. That's it. And but, again, and, it, and it's a very very uh, you know. Just uh, oppressive score. That's I mean, a perfect word for it. I was going to be. You've talked about the certain scores where he knew to stay back, and I think he he sort of uh, flooded this movie with his score. In, yeah. Uh, in in a, in a great way. I I think that all the, this music is amazing. It, it really it complements Robert Mitchum's performance as Max Cady perfectly, uh-huh. and then mm-hmm. later on, you know, almost thirty years later, it does the same thing for Robert De Niro, right? In mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese's remake, because that was one of the things that uh, Scorsese did was he reused Bernard Herrmann's score, which was uh, uh, adapted by uh, another composer, Elmer Bernstein, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in the remake, he also. Because there there wasn't quite enough music, I guess, for all the stuff that uh, that Scorsese needed. So Elmer Bernstein also repurposed some other music that Herman wrote for another score that was unused, and uh, which brings us back to you know Hitchcock and and Herman. Because of course, in 1963 there was the Birds. Well, didn't we want to hear a yeah? Let's just let's a snippet play of, just uh, the, uh, of really Cape quick Fear. something from uh, Cape Fear. Cool. All right. Okay, 1963. <laughs> yeah, see, and then you get to The Birds, which is a film that has no music, technically. And yet, uh, Hitchcock wanted the sounds of The Birds to sort of, you know, kind of be orchestrated and sort mm-hmm. of be arranged as, a, you know, rising and falling in volume and intensity and so forth. And there are some, you know, natural bird sound effects in there, but then there are also some electronically synthesized ones. There was, uh, you know, some guys over in Europe... 
named Remy Gassman and Oscar Sala. They used this uh, obscure electronic instrument known as the Troutonium, and they were hired to create all these these artificial bir- electronic bird noises that were incorporated into the film. And Herman was, you know, list is credited on the film as a sound consultant because apparently he worked with these guys in some capacity. I don't really know what I, I, I can't even imagine him collaborating with other people, but you know, that's, you know, he is credited for, for doing that. Trotonium sounds like something Douglas Adams made up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a metal found on another planet. Yeah. <laughs> but that is, and it's powered by, uh, you know, Powered by fish or something. Sure. Yeah. So, and then the the next year was uh, Marnie, which is another again the, the another Herman Hitchcock film, which is, is kind of it's it's a very good film, but it's not as good as the film certainly that you know the great run of films that came before it. And you're sort of starting to see Hitchcock in decline, which leads us directly to 1966, which was meant to be another Hitchcock Herman collaboration, Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. film with Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. Now, Herman was hired to do that film, and uh, by that time, Hitchcock's power on the Universal lot was kind of waning, and they were putting pressure on him to come up with, you know, a more pop kind of score. And again, I mean, like in 1964, when he did Marnie, you know, uh, there was uh, A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles' first film. A Hard Day's Night came out that year. The soundtrack album outgrossed the movie. (laughs) So the handwriting is on the wall, and Hollywood wants this, and they want more of it, and they want it all the time. And... They they thought they could get it from Bernard Herrmann, and they were sorely mistaken. <laughs> Hitchcock, he you know he really went to bat for Herrmann. Though he he explicitly asked, look, you know we need something that's kind of lighter. We you need something that's not sort of like the stuff that you usually do. We need something that's more commercial, more pop. And Herrmann said, okay, but that's not what he got. Uh, you know. Hitchcock went into the. the, the he said, "I'll uh, I'll just rip some stuff off from this great uh, Liverpool band I discovered." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, Hitchcock walks into the studio where Herman is conducting the score, and you know, Herman just rips into the first piece, the, the op- for the opening credits, and it is far from pop. It is you know not nothing of the kind. And here again, uh, Hitchcock wanted no music for a central uh, murder scene, and Herman wrote some. And again. Not pop, not quiet. It's very brutal, bellicose uh, music. And Hitchcock just basically turned around and walked right out. And then there were some heated words, and Herman was dismissed from the picture. Hmm. And that was the end of their collaboration. They never worked together again. A guy named uh, John Addison, who had just uh, you know done uh, Tom Jones like a few years earlier, he was brought in to do the uh, the score for Torn Curtain, and yeah, it's uh, very pop, it's very light, it's very insipid, it's very annoying. This, <laughs> you know, when you get to the, uh, the you know the uh, standard Hitchcock cameo, there's a scene with him, you know, he's waiting in an airport, and he's bouncing a little kid in his knee, and John Addison actually plays that, you know, the music, a uh, funeral march of a marionette that they use as the theme music for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. He did that <laughs> over yeah. the Hitchcock cameo, and I just wanted to punch the movie in the face how does uh how does a guy like hitchcock allow that in his movie because by this time again he was you know marnie had not done that well and you know he was you know he's getting old Mm -hmm. and again the the studio and the studio system was not what it once was and you know he was just trying to sort of you know come up with something more commercial and it didn't work because that movie you know kind of kind of didn't do very well at all and it might have been helped 
by Herman. I don't know. But uh, and here again, and, and this is one of the scores that Joel McNeely conducted the score for that music that was unused for Torn Curtain. So it's available on CD. But uh, and again, just, you know, 16 French horns, 12 flutes, nine trombones, two tubas and two sets of timpani, eight cellos and eight basses. And you got a small group of violins and violas. That's what he's working with. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated at the, at the notion of let's say he gets uh, 13 French horns and he's just like, I think three more. <laughs> I think definitely three. Four is too many. That would be excessive. Yeah. We need six. We need uh, a total of 16. Yeah, I mean, and 16 French horns is, I mean, it's a very loud noise when they're mm-hmm. going at full blast. But, uh, and then, so then at this time, he sort of, you know, Herman kind of took up with one of Hitchcock's disciples, Francois Truffaut. Mm-hmm. That same year, 66, he scored uh, Fahrenheit 451 which is a very good score, which, again, is all strings, but then there's also some harps and a little bit of percussion. And then he also did uh, Truffaut's film The Bride Wore Black in 1968, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, some people didn't like it, but uh, I happen to really like that film. And here is where uh, he sort of started getting less and less work, and you know, a few years were going by where he you know, did some movies, and then he left America altogether. And, and at, at this point, he's, what, in his 60s? Uh, yeah. It'd be mm-hmm. there about by yeah because by 1971 he would have been 60 years old, and he okay. he left England with his third wife, uh, and, and well he left America with his third wife and he went to live in England and he was there for a few years and then he sort of kind of got pulled back by Brian De Palma in 1973 suddenly you know he's getting working in these these. These couple of you know horror movies. It was Sisters, mm-hmm. which was the the Brian De Palma film, which I'm not a big fan of. And yeah, I've heard people, I've I've heard, heard that opinion. I feel like more lately than I ever expected to, because I th- I think Sisters is great. I don't, I just saw it for the first time again in preparation for this film not too long ago uh, for this podcast mm-hmm. not too long ago, and I don't know. I just and I mean uh, Herman's music is. I mean you, he's actually sort of starting to sort of repeat himself in some ways. And also, I always thought that the the music for the the murder sequence in that one in Sisters is actually a little over the top. I mean, because he's got these in addition to the the whole orchestra just running at full blast, and then he's got like synthesizers that are like you know squealing in the upper registers. And I don't know, I actually thought it was a little much, but maybe he thought that it was necessary because he just thought that the film needed because it was kind of low budget. And because you know, Brian De Palma's uh, initial instinct was, oh, we're not going to have any music for the uh, for the opening credits. That was uh-huh. what Brian De Palma thought. And Herman said, "What are you nuts? I'm going <laughs> to write you a nice thing." You know, it's like because he was thinking, you know, Brian De Palma's thinking he's going to you know lead people up to it, you know, because he's going to be like Hitchcock, and he's like Hitchcock. Uh, and Herman rightly, you know, said. You're not Hitchcock. Uh-huh. People will sit still for Hitchcock and, you know, they, they can go. They'll sit still because they know they're going to get what they paid for. They don't know you from a hole in the ground. Uh-huh. So he whipped up some music for the opening titles to set the mood. And it was probably a good idea. How much of the repeating himself is the fact, do you think, is the fact that, is due to the fact, rather, I knew I was leaving a word out there, is due to the fact that uh, De Palma is kind of aping Hitchcock to begin with? That might have been something to do with it. It might have been that, you know, I mean, again, you're getting towards the end of his life. And, you know, and he, again, throughout his career, he had always taken, you know, little bits of some things and putting them into other things. Because, I mean, there's like another thing that was I didn't mention was that there's a little uh, bit from the score for Vertigo. I mean, again, note for note, just a couple of bars that was used in a later film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, Tender is the Night mm-hmm. in, in 1962. And I'm, 
it's in i mean it's it's right there in your face you can hear and and i think that you know maybe and it goes maybe he's just you know he's kind of running out of steam and then also you know he just kind of needed some money and he needed to you know put this stuff together and again you know throughout his career he'd been you know quick to go off on anybody you know if, if the money wasn't right and you know there's no money in sisters mm-hmm. there was no money in it's alive it was just the movie he did the following year mm-hmm. for larry cohen that was a totally low budget affair mm-hmm. uh, but he he did those and and also, you know, uh, Brian De Palma thought that Bernard Herrmann was dead. <laughs> you know, so this, that's how much he had faded from, you know, from memory that, you know, uh, but, you know, of course he wasn't. And they got in touch with him and they, they brought him in. And it's sort of, you know, there's a sort of a slight resurrection of his career. Because then sisters and then he worked for Larry Cohen with It's Alive. And then he worked again with uh, Brian De Palma in 76 in the film uh, Obsession, which was, you know, Brian De Palma's version of Vertigo. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, that one actually was completed in 1975, but then it wasn't released until 76, which brings us to his last work, which mm-hmm. was Taxi Driver. Which we're going to hear a bit of, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's over with. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, it's and it, here is really like the the last instance in his final film, the last instance where you see him doing something that you know he wasn't really you know known for, something that you hadn't really heard him do before, which was kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. You had this you know this beautiful bit with the uh, with the saxophone, in addition to you know the the typical kind of film music that he had been doing throughout his career but all of a sudden you had this very you know wistful lonely you know jazz theme that was really kind of the thing that you 
you hadn't heard from him before. But it fits very well. I, I like the I like the music from Taxi Driver. When I first when I first saw the film, I remember because I, I I knew who Ber, Bernard Herman was. I knew what he had done before. And when I saw Taxi Driver, I thought like this musical score is, you know, it's it's a little, for lack of a better term, old fashioned. It's you know, it, it right. doesn't doesn't fit with like the gritty urban reality of like seventies films. Uh, but I still responded to it because he does adapt it a little bit to to the tone of the film with the jazz and, and that sort of thing. But what I also like is that I started to embrace the use of not merely older type music, but Bernard Herrmann music, the guy who did Cape Fear and yeah. Psycho, and movies of suspense and, I'll go ahead and say horror, and just the using using that and evoking that in Taxi Driver kind of informs you about the kind of movie you're going to see and the world you're going to see, which is, this is what, like, yeah, not many people are going to be hacked up by uh, a psychopath and, you know... Cape Fear is not going to happen, but like urban, lonely horror, like that's what it is for a lot of people. Right. Just anonymity, just being so very alone and how hellish that can seem. And so it sort of informed the just the general discomfort that you feel with that movie and the inevitability that something bad's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I also, I always think of, um, obviously, um, Travis Bickle's uh, voiceover and him talking uh, talking about how you know where the city has gone to and he says someday a real rain will come mm-hmm. and I feel like the score kind of reflects Travis Bickle's uh, version of the city because it's almost like the 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 way that in the, in a, in jazz in, a, in a, you know true jazz fashion the way that the instruments overlap it's almost like muddled and sludgy mm-hmm. if that makes sense it's not a clean score the way that psycho is you right. know you can't it, it 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 bleeds into one another and it's 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 a little messier if that yeah, makes the jazz sense thing was, it's pretty much going to be a little kind of relaxed and laid back <clears throat> by its nature whereas the rest of the score is you know it's it's kind of ominous mm-hmm. and and dark and again you see where he knows when to hang back because just like with the the crop duster scene in north by northwest the climactic scene yeah where you know travis bickle just marches in and just goes nuts there's no music until you get to the very end of that scene, and then pow! He uh-huh. just Herman just charges right in, and it's just perfect. It's it's perfect for that scene the way mm-hmm. the way it plays out. So well, yeah, I mean, and of course we talk about the birds um, replacing the score, or the crop dusters replacing the score, and this one you've got the guy. I'll kill you. Yeah, I'll fucking kill you. Yeah, like that's <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an assaultive score on its own. It's brilliant, but I mean, yeah, and that was. That was the last thing he did. Almost literally the last thing he did. I mean, it was uh, like December 23rd, 1975. He was back in Los Angeles, here in Los Angeles, the Burbank Studios, recording the score. December 23rd, 75, finishes conducting, finishes the recording of the score, lays down his baton, goes out to have uh, uh, to meet with Larry Cohen to screen a rough cut of God Told Me To, which was the next film that he was going to work on. Goes to his hotel room, Falls asleep, never wakes up. Mm-hmm. He died uh, uh, Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy-five, and uh, Taxi Driver was uh, was dedicated to him. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, he was going to work on God Told Me To. He was also going to do the score for Carrie. Mm-hmm. He was also going to do the score for the Seven Percent Solution. Oh yeah, which would have been would have been interesting. 
But uh, and uh, for 1976, he got two Oscar nominations: one for Taxi Driver, one for Obsession. He lost to Jerry Goldsmith for The Omen, mm-hmm. which would be the only uh, Oscar that uh, Jerry Goldsmith ever won. I like Jerry Goldsmith quite a bit. Oh, Jerry Goldsmith is awesome. And it's definitely the best thing about The Omen. And yeah. I have a soft spot for The Omen, even though I know it's not that great a film. I, I think it's a fine film. His, I, I love this, it. The score is amazing. I, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the score really, really sells that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing, in 1982, several years after his death, Wuthering Heights was eventually performed on the stage, edited down to two hours, yeah. which would only have happened after he was dead. Oh, of course, yes. Edited down by Robert Wise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, thanks. That was uh, an aw- awesome. I didn't have to do much. I know. <laughs> I learned a lot. We got uh, to listen to some music. Yeah, we listened. <laughs> by to some we, music. I mean you, the listener. Um, so thanks for being here, West. And um, before we sign off, I do want to mention, uh, just in the, keeping with the melancholy mood of Bernard Herman's death, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Uh, died this week, um, and that's uh, that's. Very sad. I, I equate. There's a there's a thing. I, I love to repeat myself on the show. And there's a thing that I talk about when it comes to movies that were before my time, like like Rocky and Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> movies that have become such a part of the cultural lexicon that you don't almost don't take them seriously until you go back and understand how great they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like I had that moment, uh, you know, when I was a little bit younger, high school, college age, with Elizabeth Taylor as well, because I just thought of her. As like the perfume lady, and she had big hair, and she was just <laughs> right. kind of like uh, this remnant of old Hollywood glamour that uh, wasn't a, it wasn't even a real thing. And then you go back and you watch uh, certainly like Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf or uh, check out Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She's uh, oh yeah, she, not is she good? She's just gorgeous in that movie. She's lovely, and she is she is not lovely in Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, right. and she's willing to drop any idea of glamour. Oh yeah, and just be this this woman that you feel like you don't you certainly don't like her, mm-hmm. and but only but by the end you just feel so she's just so pathetic, yeah. and huh. and her willingness to be that was uh, really fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it and I was very much the same way. It's just like Elizabeth Taylor was kind of a punchline in a lot of ways, but you go back and she was really astounding. Yeah, and a place in the sun, the George mm-hmm. Stevens picture. Mm-hmm. One of the, the couple that she did is, you know, she also did Giant with uh, with uh, yeah. Rock yep. Hudson. Actually, uh, Turner Classic Movies already announced that uh, next month in April they're going to devote a 24-hour period to Elizabeth Taylor. Nice. So you know, you, you might want to you know check your your listings on that and one. And Giant will take up roughly half of that. <laughs> yeah, Giant's gonna. Uh, that one's like I think I looked at the schedule. It's like almost in the middle of the night. That one <laughs> is. But uh, but there's a couple movies in there that I haven't seen that I'm looking forward to seeing. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, yeah, you don't really, you know, because you, you see her in most recently in, like, you know, doing, like, a, a cameo voice appearance in The Simpsons and things like mm-hmm. that. And you don't really, you know, take her that seriously. But, you know, it was, it, it's very much like, you know, well, the, the last vestiges of Hollywood glamour, please turn out the lights. Because, I mean, <laughs> that's, there's, what else, what else is left? Yeah. You know, that was, you know, she really was, you uh, know, that old Julie Hollywood. Andrews. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not to, sure. To extent, but she was like Hollywood glamour. Yeah, yeah, she was good. I liked her, but like, but yeah, and it's a, and you know, man, but she was a just a knockout back uh-huh. in the, those those early days and those beautiful violet eyes and, mm-hmm. and ooh, 
All right. Easy there. Watch <laughs> out. So you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com or on iTunes. You can email us, David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash ThePretension or follow Tyler on Twitter at Twitter.com slash MoreLessons, which is the official Twitter feed of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com or on iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review podcast, previously on at PreviouslyOnShow.com or on iTunes. West, where can people find you and your show and your podcast? Uh, well, people can follow me Stumbled on right at the end there. <laughs> people can follow me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash radio Conrad. Uh, you can befriend That's me. That's R A D I O C O N E L R A D. Uh, and then you can uh, find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio Conrad. The Radio Conrad podcast uh, is an ongoing thingamahoozits that you can find on blip.tv, uh, searching Radio Conrad. And, of course, you can subscribe to it in iTunes. And I really do suggest uh, you go and listen to it I in preparation for the show today. It's a minute song. You don't even feel it. You, don't even, <laughs> you really don't even feel it. How's about this? You could, in the time it took to listen to this episode, listen to all of his episodes. <laughs> so what do you think of that? Yeah, and if you have the, the iPod with the, the double-time feature for to playing your, your podcast, well, you can listen to a whole episode in a minute and a half, maybe. <laughs> um, and you know what? Speaking of uh, things being really fast and short... Uh huh. You have a you have a skill, West, uh, a singing skill uh, <laughs> that I think I would like to. Uh, I feel like I want to go out on this because it's kind of neat. You have the ability, and you you challenged people to test you. That's true. Uh, you have the ability to sing the Star Spangled Banner uh, in, in less than fifteen seconds. Less than fifteen seconds. Yes, All I right. do. Okay. Uh, okay. We will get you next time. And bye. Yeah. We're gonna end on this. Okay. Here we go. And go. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming? And the rockets spread glare, the bombs were singing air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? <laughs> that was great. Glad I remembered that at the last minute. <laughs>